passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Here's a sample of a free podcast from the Post Wrestling Cafe. $6 gets you through the door at postwrestlingcafe.com. Because we're just getting started. And as uh, you can see, Scott Wesky really put together. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Rewind Away number 145. Waiting 145 of these. I can't believe it. Wow. 145. Okay. That's a nice number. What are we going to do for 150? We will record a show. We're going to release it for everybody that night. And then we're going to come back two weeks later to do 151. I think that's how we celebrate 150. Oh, that sounds like a big plan. All right. Yeah, that's head of marketing, John Pollock, with his grandiose idea for the We just don't have, we don't have the time nor the energy to plan anything special for these. Like for 100, I don't think we did anything. Um, I mean, what are we celebrating at the end of the day? Is like, yeah, you. Time has passed. You did, you know, you didn't die. (laughs) Like, congratulations. It's, it's, uh, you know, whenever like a like an elderly actor will be on a on a late night show, and they're like, "And you're how old?" And they'll be like seventy five years old, and the crowd's like, "It's like they're applauding." It's like, what's what's the applause? What are we What are we trying to say? Like, you shouldn't have made it this far. I mean, I I guess depending on the the time, you know, um, it 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 should be considered a, a an achievement. You know, that the fact that you're able to stay healthy, you didn't get hit by a bus. Um, is that an achievement or is that like, look, I, I'm not doing anything special to avoid being hit by a bus other than I'll look both ways. And like, I, I don't think like I'm not going to condemn someone that is hit by a bus like, oh, man. You well, really you say uh, you say I'm sorry, right? You know, if somebody if you hear about somebody getting hit by a bus at any age, I, right? I've never spoken to someone that. um can say I've been hit by a bus. Usually, that has a one-way ending to it. Well, I mean the the relatives of the person who might oh, might have been hit by a bus. Of course, you say my condolences. I'm sorry, and and yeah. that's what the expectation that hey, you didn't expect this to happen, um, and you feel bad. So shouldn't you feel good if somebody didn't get hit by a bus and ended up living to seventy five? Well, you're stating that to be hit by a bus and die tragically is something unexpected. So mm-hmm. the opposite of that would be making it to 75 would be expected that you I, the, would be expected to live that long. So I guess, again, it depends on um, what what period we're talking about. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago, I don't know how much how expected it was to live until 75. 
And depending on uh, it's 75 just, is a great number. Like 75, I think, is a really um it's a nice bottom, number to make it to. But, but a reasonable bottom, one too at the same time. Like I I think that's like that's the I I would say once you're passing 75, you're 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 getting into, you know. Okay. I'll ask you that again when you're 75 and you tell me if you're you're ready to go at that point. I'm not saying I'm going to be ready to go necessarily. I'm just stating like I'm done. This is a good it. number. I'm done checking out. It is. It is a it's a great number. So it's just a nice thing to say to somebody, you know, and to be able to like, oh, like, OK, oh, you're turning 40 next year, John. Wow, that's great. Congratulations. It's just it's just a thanks. I've been say. working hard on it. I've, I've prepared for 39 years. I, I appreciate your applause for my ability to turn 40 i've i appreciate you understanding how hard i've worked on this it's, well it is a way to 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 just maybe put into perspective um life is hard and to simply you know go by your 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 normal routine and and to make it another year i think that's a cause for celebration yeah when are we going to be the targets of ageism like when do we get to that age where it, it, it's going to be just uh that's going to be people's target on you um what do you mean any anything, it's going to be oh, just just some old guy that uh, is out of touch. It depends who you ask. I mean, I'm sure you get some of that from your kids. No, they're they're pretty. They have no clue. I think my age. Like they've guessed before that I'm 16 years old, and I'm partially. I tend to just roll with it. Maybe wait a few years. You know, yeah. when they're when they're teenagers, I'm sure you'll get plenty of it. Um, yeah. I I mean, I wonder if there are people that listen to us right now and just think, oh, there are here are a bunch of old guys, you know, talking about pro wrestling. What do they know? What do they know about this? Probably stuff? a lot if we're older. I would say, sure, like just by, by sheer definition. Um, now, is that ageism? I would state if your major complaint about someone directly goes to their age. Um, yeah, I, I would state that because let's apply the exact same uh, analysis or thought coming from someone half our age. Would you be uh -huh. disagreeing with that person or are you simply disagreeing with someone because they are of a different generation than you? Um, depends on the topic and depends, I, I guess, what they're talking about. Um, sometimes I think it, it's it's fair to use that as a criticism, you know, like if somebody were to say, well, what does Wei Ting know about, um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call that? Uh, PewDiePie. Um, I think it'd be fair to say he's like, you know, he's not of this generation, you know, therefore I don't think he would. I'd know say that's a win that. that you know less about PewDiePie. But it would be a fair criticism. I wouldn't necessarily consider it ageism. Yeah, know? but you're also not speaking as an authority on, on PewDiePie. But I mean, if we just be direct trying to, like if I had to for some sure. reason talk about PewDiePie or oh, Logan Paul, as an example, maybe I'd, I'd listen to your analysis of any of these people. Right. Oh. I think you're fairly reasoned. Um, I, I would hope to be if I ever had to speak at length about PewDiePie. Yeah. With all due respect, I am looking at the amount of notes I have for this show. So I think we are going to pivot over to the Ultimate Fighter season one. From January of 2005 when it launched on Spike TV. And this was selected by Jake Alinar, our espresso executive producer. And he has sent in a, uh, a recorded memo for us to listen to. So we'll get his thoughts a little later on. So the structure of this review, we're going to review the first three episodes that aired in 2005. And then we will fast forward to the finale fight for the light heavyweight contract between Stephen Bonner slash Stephen Bonner and Forrest Griffin uh, as well. So we're going to talk about three episodes and one fight. Uh, but I have I have uh, called together 
culled, a great word, a lot of notes, research for this season. I want this to be our definitive look at the Ultimate Fighter. So please bear with me, Way, for some of my uh, non sequiturs. I'm, I'm looking forward to it very much. I mean, this is actually a, an incredibly important topic um, for just the history of combat sports. And I think by extension, the history of uh, the WWE as well, you know, essentially the UFC has been their biggest competition throughout the past two decades. And um, this was the show that really kind of paved, paved the way in relationship to uh, the WWE's help actually. So this is an interesting time period for us because this predated the two of us knowing one another, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had not we had not met it that we were still we were in the same program at school, but we had not crossed paths at this point yet. So Mm -hmm. tell me about your relationship to mixed martial arts at this specific time as the ultimate fighter is launching. Are you I'm sure you're obviously aware of the UFC. Are you actively uh, watching any cards or is this your diving diving in point? I was aware of MMA simply um, because I was a pro wrestling fan. and, And I think even at this point, there were certain uh, it, it was always like a topic of discussion. Like I would listen to the law and I would hear them, uh, you know, Merrick and, and, and Dan. And I think Jay was on the show at the time talking about the latest UFC shows. And it would, it would always be such a big blind spot for me where I, I would honestly just kind of tune out because I didn't know who, who they were talking about. I didn't really have access to UFC pay-per-views. I didn't even really watch pay-per-views. None of my friends watched it. I think we watched the first UFC, you know, back in the, the mid nineties, just out of curiosity, but beyond that, hadn't really thought about it or, or, or heard heard about it much. Um, occasionally, it would pop up on TSN in these sort of one-off specials that didn't really have a regular time slot. And I just maybe watched those out of the curiosity. The work of one uh, Brian Sobey on off. Is that right? Oh, okay. Oh, yes, he was they, uh, involved in that. Well, ahead of his time, uh, Mr. Sobey. But beyond that, I, I wouldn't cla- Sobey Vision. classify. Sobey Vision? What? That was, that? That, was that was his nickname by... Uh, oh, what, what, you, Brian Toby probably... is a former uh, producer, uh, uh, executive producer over at the Fight Network. Actually, one of my first bosses. Actually, the guy responsible for um, putting me on the law. So, um, yeah, yeah so he, he, he did a really deep uh, job search where he came out and he looked at three people. What do you do on Sunday night? <laughs> I'm free. You're the new call. Do you have a cell phone? Yes. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. Like, it is a wild story about, like, how you and I, I mean, it so easily could have been, like, it was you, Stash Kapar, and Maury Shessel. And yeah. my life goes really differently if this guy just points, uh, like, a centimeter to the right and pick somebody else. <laughs> well, for one thing, Stash wasn't even much of a wrestling fan. Um, and I think Maury was, but I was the only one to, to have heard of the law. So that was probably... A, a big part of the reason why anyway like so the so mma would would always just sort of be in the vicinity of um things i would hear about but it was just more more of a blind spot where i would just kind of tune out and not really care about the discussion but you were deep into it by this point oh i was uh, i was ordering all of the pay-per-views and it was like i myself was someone like i you know i would go as a as you know in my pre-teens and they would always stack the UFC tapes with pro wrestling tapes. So I just naturally started renting UFC tapes and getting into it. Like me and my brother really got into it. Like we're talking like 12, 13 years old that we're watching all the UFCs. And what was was, sort of your gateway? Like, how did you become that level of fan? Um, well, well, it started just with like renting tapes and such. Like it was just, it was in the pro wrestling section. So I started renting them and watching them and just was enamored with like this, 
style. Um, mm. It's just because they were grouped with pro wrestling tapes. Like, I don't think I would have found them elsewhere. And in Canada, like it was like, this is still like the dark time. So it was still hard to get up to date UFC cards, but I was, I was following stuff online and that, and then beginning in February of 2001, it's the first show after uh, the Fertitas and Dana White purchased the company. Um, that show was available in Canada and I just, I did not miss pretty much any of the pay-per-views and would watch them. And then it was my same group of friends that we would all get together for wrestling pay-per-views. They started to get out of pro wrestling around like 0304. And then they just naturally all shifted to the UFC. And we suddenly were, instead of getting together once a month on Sundays, we would get together once a month on Saturday. Or it was even less frequent, like every other month on a Saturday. And we'd watch the pay-per-views and this is before ultimate fighter. So it was it was very interesting to me just to see anecdotally the fact that here were disenfranchised wrestling fans that were all like pretty into it mm -hmm. and then shifted over to MMA. And that's the story of the UFC's rise. It's a lot of disenfranchised wrestling fans that found something that spoke to them a lot more than than WWE programming was at the time. And, and TNA was this is pre Spike TV. So TNA is a. You're talking like TNA and ROH and New Japan. That's a distant second in terms of accessibility. And we're removed from WCW and ECW being real alternatives. Like they, you have this big void in the market. And here is the UFC that's several years later going to fill that for most people. Yeah, I think when we're talking about maybe the success success of the Ultimate Fighter, we have to talk about what WWE like was at the time and what it was like to be a fan of professional wrestling on a mainstream level. If you weren't watching, if you didn't have access to ROH um, or, I don't know, Japanese wrestling tapes at this time, the only thing you were presented with was 2005 era WWE, which was, um, I don't know, getting close to being Here. as... Here is the lineup for Raw the night the Ultimate Fighter debuts mm -hmm. from Toronto, Ontario at the Air Canada Center, which I attended and then came home that night to watch the Ultimate Fighter, which I have a very funny story about. But this is what you got at Raw in Toronto that night. La Resistance, Rob Conway and Sylvan Grenier teaming with Maven to beat Shelton Benjamin, The Hurricane and Rosie. Uh, Shawn Michaels versus Christian. OK, six minutes. Batista over Viscera. In two and a half minutes, Chris Jericho against Chris Benoit, 12 and a half minutes. And your main event, no holds barred match. I'm going to wait till you finish drinking. Uh, Kane versus Gene Snitsky. Yes. Amazing. This is kind of the, uh, I mean, you get the um, the good and the bad here. I mean, uh, Michael's Christian, Jericho, Benoit. I think people will take that. And then you have, you juxtapose it with Batista and Viscera and Gene Snitsky and Kane. But this is when, you know, we are. We are removed from the Chris Benoit, Eddie Guerrero title runs. And now it is, you know, JBL is your big dominant champion on SmackDown, Hunter on Raw. And we're getting set for the coronations for Batista and Cena at that year's WrestleMania. But this is a lull period. Like 2004 is not a great year for the company. And it's not until Cena really takes, uh, takes aim. It, like Cena is still on SmackDown at this time. He's not even on the flagship show and is not the the definitive number one star of the company. Mm -hmm. He is still on that rise. Um, but yeah, this is a period like a lot of people are like, this is the, the hangover effect of the attitude era and the company, I think for several years, really trying to find what is our next identity going to be. It's like, we still want to cater to, 
that attitude era fan that got in through Austin and McMahon, but we're, we need to be a bit more progressive and they're sort of lost in this, um, this era. And attempts at recapturing what they thought was the magic of the attitude era have really by this point completely fallen flat and have, you know, often been embarrassing, like in the form of, you know, trying to recapture HLA or, or just any sort of like, I mean, this was also the time of what, like, uh, the Kane and, and Lita and, and shit like that as well. Dean Snitsky booting the baby into the crowd. Yeah, so this was a product, I and I think I'd stopped watching by this point. I might have at this point um, become like a more of a casual fan where I tuned in for WrestleMania, and beyond that, had no interest in the product whatsoever. So, um, I was very much the type of fan that I think was really sick of the cartoonish aspects of of everything attached to the, the WWE at the time, and I was looking for more sports like presentation. I was looking for more believability in the characters and in the storylines, and in comes the UFC. I want Gene Snitsky, Kane, Batista, and Viscera in a house with alcohol. <laughs> That's what I want. Yes. Mm-hmm. So uh, the story here, I'll probably forget it later, but I probably told this before. But so I go to this show in Toronto and like the ultimate fighter, like there was a ton of buzz about this. And that was why I just wanted to get home and watch this first. Se- like it was a really big deal to see UFC on television mm-hmm. and just. It's like, here's this thing that it's like, I figured I was maybe the only person in Canada following this stuff and mm. beyond like just online presence. So this is, this is January 17th. So we're like in the, in the thick of winter and I am a year round bike rider at this time. So wow. my, my routine would be uh, ride my bike to the subway station, subway it down, go to school. This is when we're at, at Ryerson now TMU and I'd lock my bike. Uh, go to the show that night. I come back, whatever time it is, like midnight. This is after Raw. And dude, it is like freezing outside. It's snowing. And I have not brought a, a hat with me. I wear my helmet. So I'm riding home and it is so fucking cold that I'm I'm riding my bike with one hand and putting my hand onto my ear because it's so cold. Now... <laughs> I'm going to break news here. I have one hand, but I have two ears. So I get home. Dude, I have no feeling in my ear. I'm watching The Ultimate Fighter. This thing is like throbbing. I somehow go to sleep. The next day I wake up fucking frostbite, okay? My ear is frostbit from the night before. Why I wasn't shifting my hand back and forth, can't tell you this. This is uh, years and years ago. But that is... And so the next day I go to school, my ear is like a different size than the other one. So I wear my hat all day long at class because I just (laughs) I look like a clown with one ear bigger than the other. And this lasted like this was a week. My ear was just what the fuck did I do? And that is my when I think of the Ultimate Fighter season one, that's one of my instant memories of getting the only time in my life I've had frostbite. I that's an incredibly specific uh, visual and memory at- uh, attached to your, I guess, experience of the ultimate fighter, which I did not expect. It's the closest uh, I'll have the cauliflower ear. That's maybe the link to the ultimate fighter. Right. You were going through your own um, six-figure contract uh, battle. Yes. Wow. So a few notes here. So um, we will go through uh, some of the history, but this was – pretty much the last ditch effort for this manage this ownership of the UFC. Like the Pertitas had sunk 
like over $40 million into this. They famously bought the company in 2001 for $2 million, and they were the majority owners with Dana White having a, a, a minority percentage as well in Zufa LLC. So, you know, they had had their talks over the years about potentially selling this. We've heard stories of like Shane McMahon having an interest in trying to buy this thing. But they, Dana White's big thing, Dana White grew up as a boxing fan. So his frame of reference for regular weekly television was a series called Tuesday Night Fights on the USA Network, which was just weekly fights that they would put on USA and got canceled in 1998. And so Dana, like that was his idea. We can get weekly fights on television. But then with the kind of advent of reality programming, they came across this idea. But had it been Dana's idea, don't know if it has the same... Uh, urgency and attraction if we're just presenting fights mm. on a weekly basis i think the reality show format this was when reality tv was not i would say as as patterned or tired and this was something new for an an mma audience for a pro wrestling audience that i mean largely your precursor was tough enough totally yeah um i think uh you know, we 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 were past like I would say the initial boom of you know Survivor and Big Brother and uh, you know competition shows like American Idol, but reality TV was still very much it was the thing. Like you had a reality TV pretty much for kind of everything. Um, but this was a concept that I think it was a model that worked perfectly for a sport that nobody knew about because um, it principally focused on personalities first and foremost and that's i think the key ingredient to promoting any form of combat sports you have to sell the characters you have to sell the reason why people are fighting who they are you have to care about why they're who who's fighting it and what they're fighting for and it, it just seemed to be maybe a perfect match for what the fertitas and dana were looking for at the time yeah and Again, it's so hard to speak to someone that has just come along in the last few years to watch MMA. And the the talking point is like there's so many fights to follow and keep up with. The novelty of there's not going to be a vote at the end of this. There's going to be a fight. You are going to fight to stay in the house. And just seeing a UFC fight on free television that I don't have to pay on pay-per-view to see that was a hook right there just the idea of fights on television like it, it mm -hmm. was the polar opposite of today where you're, you're you can get mma on multiple times a week and it's that's yeah. not the the hook so for me that wasn't even necessarily someone to draw because i didn't necessarily value seeing an mma fight at the time you know i wasn't an mma fan but because in every you were like, I wonder who could saw a log fast enough. <laughs> that's what I was there for. Yeah, that's what I wanted to pay the for. The ultimate logger. <laughs> that's it. Uh, but but you, it, it was more of the, again, like the, the, the fact that um, every reality show tended to have an, an elimination something, right? And typically those would take place in the form of a cast vote or it would take place in the form of, um, I don't know, judging votes um, or audience votes. No reality show up until this point had an elimination based off of fighting, which is the most primal, I think, competition and act that you could possibly have between, you know, any animal species. Um, so to, to suddenly like be presented with the idea that people had to literally fight for their survival on the show, I thought was really incredible and something even in a reality show was was incredibly novel.
So the, the, the Fertitas put $10 million into the production of this. And a key person in all of this is Craig Poligian, who remains um, the, like a, a giant producer uh, in concert with the UFC. So of this $10 million, they earmarked zero for the fighters. And yeah. this becomes a, a very interesting uh, element that is introduced on the episode and leading to maybe among the most famous scenes in ultimate fighter history with dana white's speech but i i do find it astounding because it very much informs us into the mindset of the ufc that extrapolates to this antitrust case that as they earmark 10 million dollars they believe that they they were doing the favor here for these fighters and that we do not need a budget for these fighters to compete we are doing them the favor not the other way around. And when we look at this, like we're talking about, I mean, I think in a, these fighters, there were eight fights inside of the house. So just doing some simple math, if you had paid them $10,000 to fight, which I think they would have looked at at that time in 2004 and five as a great, great payoff. We're talking 160 K that would have been like, we're talking about a $10 million budget and, we're going to cut corners here on the ingredients that are going to make this show, which are fighters that are fighting outside. And you did see this kind of rift in the house of, wait a minute. And it seemed like there was a lot of miscommunication among those that believed, are we going to be fighting in this house or are we just doing eliminations until we get to the finale? And there was, um, yeah, fighters here who were under the impression coming in that we're not fighting until the finale. It's one fight at the end, not, all these other fights inside the house. Yeah. In fact, there was a, so there's a really great article uh, from ESPN uh, mm-hmm. documenting the 15 year anniversary and, and it featured a lot of quotes. And this was actually a quote from uh, Bobby Southworth who said uh, the way it was explained to us was it was going to kind of be like a survivor thing where we went through all these different types of challenges. And then whoever the last two guys in the weight class were at the end of the show, those were the guys that were going to fight. That was what we were told. Nobody was expecting to fight. And that points to a very, very clear um, lack of communication or just even downright, I don't know, um, misleading deception, Um, you know, to to not communicate to the fighters beforehand that you're expected to fight several times on road to to winning this tournament. Now, I I do find it incredibly bold that not only did they um, include this in the show, they made it a highlight and a feature of the show to explain you are not paying these guys and this is why. And it led to this, of as you mentioned, John, um, probably most memorable, one of the most memorable moments outside of the spritzing uh, and several other incidents on the show. But um, one of the most memorable moments uh, of the Ultimate Fighter with Dana White's speech and up until this point, probably the most the, the, the sort of breakout scene for Dana White himself. Yeah. And to me, it is so uh, instructive about the mentality of Dana White and sort of his double speak here because and we can get into it a bit now but we'll uh, be covering this later in the actual episode but when Dana White is giving this speech it is not focusing on money he is curbing the argument to be are you an ultimate fighter he's yeah. making this about their manhood he's making this about pride yeah. he is not making this he says, do you want to fight? That's not the argument. It's we are mm-hmm. here to fight, but we are also prize fighters that are doing this for a living. But yeah. Dana shifts it. And that becomes whenever you hear a fighter that can't can't take a fight on two weeks notice. It's not that this fighter doesn't have time to prepare. It's he doesn't want it more. He doesn't want it enough. He's not hungry. Yeah. And he makes it into this 
He knows that these fighters, they operate at such a high level of insecurities, ego, and will, and they feed into these insecurities that allows for someone like a Dana White to very much manipulate to their, to what their wants are by playing to such like primal like urges. It's very similar to um, remember Drew McIntyre. So people listening to this in the future won't even get this at all. But like this past Monday's Raw, Drew McIntyre as a heel did this thing, which I found very fascinating, where he decided to poll the audience, asking them whether or not if they were in a similar situation, they would want to enact revenge on Jey Uso. So he deliberately picks out one person in the audience. His name was Austin, I believe, who did not raise his hand and pointed at him put the camera on him and said look at austin he doesn't care about his family look austin's family no he doesn't love you that's the type of like very similar almost kind of childish argument that i feel like dana is making here where um these fighters are simply asking to be paid for their fights and dana instead turns it into an argument about whether or not they truly want to be here as fighters um but because he's so i think charismatic in delivering the speech it's profanity laden so it feels real and i think totally fits maybe the vibe of like what you would expect of the ultimate fighter it's it's a very motivational charismatic speech and for that reason um everybody kind of looks at back at it incredibly fondly including a lot of the fighters this this would have landed very differently today where I think it would have been much more on the side of the fighters. Well, well, are the fighters getting paid now on the Ultimate Fighter? They are, um, yeah, to my understanding, um, they, they, there are, and and there was the compromise here on this show that it ended up being like, if you get a finish in your fight, you get a $5,000 bonus, which I guess is something. Um, But yeah, like at this time, it's, wow, what an awesome speech. What a great moment. And it's like Dana, this is Dana coming out of his shell and becoming the Mm -hmm. public figure Dana White that was the furthest thing from it pre-Ultimate Fighter. Well, pre, like even pre this speech on this show, you see a very different Dana White. He's very, I want to say kind of dorky, you know, like loose fitting button up shirts that um, I don't know. Well, at the time he was not, he was probably half the size he is right now, just in terms of muscle mass. But he also didn't feel like the Dana White, I think we all know now, which is a lot more of a sort of. What's up, GOP? Exactly. Like this was a lot more of a straight laced GM type just there to kind of read his lines, maybe a little bit nervous on camera as well. This was when he really sort of like became the Dana White that we know, at least on screen. All right. We'll talk about this more because there's plenty. This is a very, very famous Mm -hmm. scene. But so it's $10 million that is invested. And these fighters, again, no pay here. They lived in this house for 54 days. No books, no phones, no TV. But all you can drink alcohol, and uh, let's just see where things go from from here. The article also states that um, initially this house was stocked with like basically crap, like you know chips and candy bars, and it actually took the fighters to request actual nutrients and sustenance for their very sort of demanding, you know, athletic uh, uh, bodies. So um, come on, Dana, we're hungry. Literally, we're hungry for this. Yeah. (laughs) Do you want to be an ultimate fighter? It doesn't matter what you put in your body. Yeah, I I totally, like, in hindsight, completely understand those arguments. But they were able to get away with it because the landscape of MMA at this time didn't present, and like, too many other – like, made this a very attractive opportunity for anybody who was asked to be a part of it, right? Like, where else would a fighter go 
to gain this level of, I guess, I don't know, attention and notoriety for this niche sport. Yeah. So the first, um, we're going to go back to some of the, uh, the past of the observers. And the first time that this show is, uh, kind of well it's officially announced this is from the july 5th 2004 issue of the observer spike tv officially announced that it will be airing 13 weeks of ultimate fighter the ufc based reality show starting in january no time slot was announced for the show which at first was hoped to be ready for september because there is nothing official decided as far as format goes shooting first scheduled for july is now being moved to september what is finalized is they will be having 16 fighters with some degree of experience living in a house in Las Vegas. The expectation is some will quit under the stress of the training and others will be cut. There will be four winners, one in each of the four different weight classes, which would change, who would reportedly then get, get six-figure contracts and presumably start debuting on pay-per-view as early as March. Considering the current numbers UFC pays the non-top stars, if they are really paying six figures for relative novices, I can see a lot of unhappy campers. I'm sure fighter pay will not be a controversy. So just even the the idea of a six-figure contract itself is very much um, deceptive. Yes. Because how many fights are on these six-figure contracts? It was uh, for – I think it called for two fights a year over three years. Um, So So six fights. Six fights. So are you getting paid six figures at the end of the six fights? basically that it that it it could add up to that but i think that's also with like win your win bonus as well uh on, on top of that like the these notorious and to this day like these tough contracts are they're not great contracts to, mm-hmm. especially when you come out of it and they're they're they have a lot of term attached to them and it's it's just not th- these are not great contracts it's not all that different from when they did that million dollar tough enough and then an asterisk it's like you're only guaranteed one year of this contract and then they will choose if they renew it for 250k a year for the next three years um they will be trained and coached they will be trained by a coaching staff presumably of well-known ufc fighters and the show will take their training and non-training similar to tough enough the fighters haven't been picked although there were a half dozen fighters that were under consideration at the june 19th show in las vegas the coaching staff is also up in the air Part of the problem with the coaching aspect, if you have to get guys willing to spend two or three months in Las Vegas away from their families and away from training their real team members. A potential downside of the show is the timing. Tough Enough has been around for years and also beating the show to the punch, so to speak, are similar boxing reality shows on Fox and NBC with affiliations of Sylvester Stallone and Oscar De La Hoya. Hmm. So these were the the early concerns about the the ultimate fighter uh, in July. But then we uh, fast forward to January 3rd, the roster of fighters and teams have been announced for the Ultimate Fighter reality show that begins on January seventeenth uh, after Raw at about eleven oh eight p.m. on Spike TV. The show is of paramount importance to the growth of MMA in the U.S. and it will take the pro wrestling audience being interested to make it a success. Spike and prior to that USA Network were never able to find a show once Raw became a ratings hit in nineteen ninety eight that could keep any semblance of the Raw audience. Among those who tried and failed included such divergent shows as Pam Anderson as a cartoon stripper, the Farm Club rapping music show, MXC, <laughs> Joe Schmo, and CSI. The time oh, slot was... Yeah, Joe Schmo, Schmo definitely kept me. Yeah, I think uh, Joe Schmo was a, was a cult hit. I think Great that show. one Spike was happy with. The time slot was picked by the network with the idea that the wrestling audience would be the perfect audience to try and hook on the show. If the show fails in the ratings, it would greatly hurt UFC's chances of getting a strong cable network to carry the weekly fight television show the company has needed to expand its base, create new stars, and promote its pay-per-views past the grassroots hardcore level. Um, 
There is an interesting trivia note that three of the fighters on the show are from the same AKA team in San Jose, which means that they were training partners of WWE's Tough Enough winner, Daniel Pewter, and many have likely trained with some of the New Japan wrestlers. The shows will be based around a team format coached by Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell as a buildup for their light heavyweight title fight in April, which is expected to be UFC's premier event of 2005. And it goes on uh, to list uh, all the different participants that have been selected. And who who are the uh, uh, AKA guys? Koscheck, Koscheck, Swick, and uh, might have uh, Bobby Southworth. I think I okay. think those were your three AKA fighters. And you had a, a couple Team Quest guys here as well. Yeah, Lieben and Nate Quarry are both uh, Team Quest, and that's where, where you can see early on Lieben is just like unloading on everyone but he's very respectful of nate quarry because and, and of course randy by extension uh, yeah. uh in in team quest but they they really at least in these three episodes don't really shine a light on like past or mm-hmm. even present relationships that some of these fighters have other than lieben and swick having a, pr- a previous fight uh a year prior mm-hmm. so there you go and then yeah filming began in september of 2004 and we go into the debut January the 17th, 2004, The Quest begins. This post-wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement, because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. And we have 16 unsigned fighters and highlights of the season to come. The competitions, which were very much panned at the time of what the hell is this? Why are we watching these guys carry the coaches through water? And this, we got two eliminations based off this stuff. So if you would come into the house, you're that's how these first episodes go. Is like the eliminations are not based on fights. But again, if you listen to that quote from Bobby Southworth, they, they were under the expectation that this was the game. This was what you had to do and that you weren't supposed to fight. In fact, they fought back or um, uh, well, they, they argued against fighting to, to be eliminated. I'd go so far to state if it was all eliminations like this until the finale. I think this has a I, I think this just would have been a real turnoff for, for a lot of people of watching them just do these goofy fucking puzzles and shit. And this yeah. is how we're going to choose the ultimate fighter. And I think Dana and the Fertitas recognize that unless you got that very impassioned speech, right? But the, the idea of this show beyond, I think, um, I don't know, selling the UFC as a brand is to sell the sport of MMA and to, to, to not showcase fighting in strictly training until the finale would have i think done um would have not been effective uh, in my opinion in in showing the sport of mma so um yeah and they trumpet the fact that the winner will get a three-year six-figure contract in a separate interview dana had cited a figure of three hundred fifty thousand dollars that the contract would be worth so that that works out to about like fifty eight thousand a fight fifty eight thousand so it is six figures per year so it's not like, you know, no, you, no, 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 fight. no. This would be six figures over the life of the contract. Sorry, you said 350,000, right? 350,000 total divided yeah. over six fights. 
Yeah. So if somebody fought, for instance, two fights a year, they would at least. Okay. I understand figures. what you mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. If they, they fought twice a year. Yes. So we go to uh, we we got to talk about the iconic theme song attached to the to the oh, ultimate please. fighter. Okay, please. what a capsule, a time capsule of this era, rap rock, DJ scratches in the background. Oh, God, great! This hook. is the ultimate. You're gonna get hit. You're gonna get knocked out. It's a classic. All right, don't act like you 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 didn't uh, you bop your head to this. The, oh, I hated this song with a passion. But oh, yes, it's a classic. It was back in my life here temporarily. For I mean, it fit, fit really the the tone of the time, in, in, including uh, stem. Um, really, just kind of classics of of the UFC soundtrack. So our coaches are, as we mentioned, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell. They had previously fought in June of 2003 and would be fighting again in April. Uh, Randy Couture is the light heavyweight champion at, at this point and uh, would go on to lose the fight to Chuck Liddell. And then they have a rematch uh, the next year. But this was really the – what did you think about the option of these two as coaches? Because this comes at a time when uh, Tito Ortiz is – He's in the company, and you would have thought he would have made a natural. And they went with these two guys that, on paper, like in this time period, like these are not the most charismatic individuals, but they mm-hmm. went with two of the hallmarks of of the company. And yeah, I, I don't know if these would have been most people's first choices for a reality series. I have to think they would have considered Tito, right? Or um, and, and, like, was he? maybe politically on the outs with with any of the others like that that would have not led to him being a part of this at the time i mean at at the point that they are like he fights in february so they've Mm -hmm. got him signed for for a fight and like i i am sure that he would have been on the short list of people that they would have wanted on Hmm. on this show but um you know, yeah. it, it might have just simply been like the timing of this all. Like the uh, the fact is, we have this fight in April. We want to build to a fight. We don't want Tito's fight in February. Like, it, could he have even done this show when he he had a fight coming up in in that close amount of time? I mean, I wonder. He did ultimately, uh, uh, no pun intended, you know, yeah. b- become a coach. And uh, but I think the choice of Chuck and Randy, uh, e- while on the surface maybe like not the ideal pairing you'd want for a reality TV show. I thought it ended up working out really well for, for, for one thing. I mean, Chuck was really kind of your, your top dog or at least about to be your top dog in the light heavyweight division. Somebody you, you, you were about to, you know, build your entire division around. And Randy, like, again, not on the surface, somebody that you would, I, I don't know, kind of consider for a role like this. Like he's just sort of like a, a balding man who doesn't really speak very sort of, uh, I don't know, boisterously, but he ended up being, the best sort of like dad like figure you could find for an American audience, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly wise, incredibly nurturing as a leader. And I thought that he worked really well as a counter to Chuck Liddell, who is just kind of very much like, you know, you're, you're almost a, a bit more of a stereotypical tough guy who doesn't say much. He's got a mohawk, you know, for crying out loud. And, um, he comes across maybe as as a more of like a stoic bad boy type in comparison to Randy and the two of them. I thought even though you didn't get that heat between the two so, so much, they were great sort of um difference difference some um, sort of um archetypes, I suppose. So instead of four weight classes, it is just focusing on light heavyweights and middleweights. And you know this is at a time when there are so few. Um, uh, you you have kind of your pick of the litter of all of these rising fighters that are outside. Like you got to have 
significantly quality fighters, which I yeah. think would pay dividends because, you know, at the time, a lot of these fighters that came out of Ultimate Fighter during this era, they had like this scarlet letter on them, like, oh, that's the reality show fighter. But these were like, I would say 75% of these guys were like good fighters. And in some cases, like a Forrest Griffin would win a championship. Got Josh Koscheck had a very significant career. Mike Swick had a very Florian. good career. Kenny Florian wins a championship later on. Stefan Bonner has a long career. Nate Quarry and Diego Sanchez were very highly touted prospects, as was Lieben. Southworth had a very good career. So it's not like you were just picking like this, this low-end MMA talent that was going to shine on the reality show and get swallowed up by real ufc competition i think that legitimized the season the fact that so many of these fighters had had very good careers after beyond that um they were also at least a, a good handful of them tremendous personalities for reality tv you know they they were um i mean we'll, we'll be talking about it but uh, this was alone um even without considering i think their fighting potential like a really strong reality t- tv show cast so the light heavyweights are Stephen Bonner, Mike Swick, Forrest Griffin, Sam Hoger, Bobby Southward, Logan Loden Sincade, Jason Thacker, and Alex Schonauer. The middleweights are Diego Sanchez, Josh Koscheck, Kenny Florian, Chris Sanford, Josh Rafferty, Alex Karalexis, Nate Quarry, and the star within about two minutes of the series, Chris Lieben. Mm-hmm. And not just Randy and Chuck featured on this uh, series with Dana White, but we also have for the only season a host in Willa Ford. Yeah, um, almost like sort of a forgotten trivia note at this point, you know, in relation to maybe her um, career in the UFC, if you want to call it that. Again, a lot of the things that I think ended up being criticized as a part of this first season are just tropes of reality TV that – I'm I'm sure, you know, Polygian or Spike TV themselves maybe felt like was necessary um, in the form of these competitions and in the form of, you know, attractive female pop star host um, that was really just kind of there to introduce challenges. I mean, in the future, they quickly realized that somebody like Adana was more than enough um of a charismatic lead and including you know of course uh he's all he also has the authority of of being the actual president um to be able to which is fair to look in 2004 when you are casting this thing i am not looking at dana as Mm -hmm. the focal point of this big project and as soon as you see him in this element of course it makes all the sense in the world that dana assumes this role exactly yeah so we start off things and they're just coming into to the tough gym. Will Ford introduces Dana, and we just intro the coaches. They go over their history. And before we got, do you want to be a fucking ultimate fighter? It was Dana looking up at all the photos on the wall of past and present fighters. Which one of you will have your picture up there? Maybe that would have been the notable quote coming out of season one. Sure. Which yeah. one of you will have your picture up there? And... Then we are introduced to the fighter house that comes with a no fighter pay, but no expenses spared on jacuzzis and alcohol. And uh, Chris Lieben proclaiming, gentlemen, let's get hammered. And that would be the theme early on of Chris Lieben, who I just think this guy immediately um, endeared himself to, to people as like the focal point that they uh, allegedly Lieben when they were doing the casting. They put a camera in front of him and just pretty much said, can you tell us a bit about your life story? 
And within several minutes, they came into the room and dude, like, dude, you're cast. Like mm-hmm. he was just so charismatic. And that comes through. This series is so different if you don't have a Chris Lieben. And a lot of the focus in historical context gets put on the shoulders of Forrest and Stefan. And that was great. But it was this guy and the feud with Koscheck and Southworth that to me solidified the success of the Ultimate Fighter. And Lieben was the key. Yeah, yeah. Maybe excluding, you know, the 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 Griffin Bonner fight. I would even say including the Griffin Bonner fight. I like, would. They they don't like Griffin Bonner were not really big presences on the show itself. You know, we all remember the fight at the end, but the star of this show is Chris Lieben. And in fact, in this even the first minutes of the show, they build the entire cast around Chris Lieben. He is like sort of the firecracker that I think everybody reacts to. And um, as a result, you got a great personality showcase of not just him, but everybody else. Diego Sanchez is in the opening moments presented as a contrast to Chris Lieben. Chris Lieben is just, you know, your stereotypical, almost like frat boy type gets in the house and just immediately is the life of the party. Very obnoxious while Chris uh, Diego Sanchez in contrast, um, stays in his room and does yoga and, and says, you know, like he's basically very disciplined and has no time for it. We have strange brew who, basically is the is the sort of victim of bullying from chris lieben here you have other fighters in the house that are just basically pissed off at you know lieben's antics and you and lieben is literally pissing off (laughs) exactly and in seconds like we immediately have several characters of this cast that fit into those archetypes of that i think you might expect of a reality tv show and i'm already interested in seeing two of these guys you know fight each other and when you're coming from like WWE Raw, where they could spend hours and hours of TV and not even build maybe a portion of the same interest in anybody, it and it doesn't feel as real as something like this, you realize just how good of a vehicle for storytelling a reality show can be for something like the UFC. Yeah, I mean, the tension is is brewing right from the, from the get-go. Jason Thacker is sort of he will forever be linked uh, to this show and th- there's a fantastic feature that chuck mindenhall wrote a number of years ago in search of strange brew that he wrote for mma fighting in 2015 that i would recommend people check out but it certainly gives you a different perspective like here he is kind of presented as, a, as this laughing stock and this guy had zero mma experience like he was put into this and to be to be the common man like pretty he, much and yeah. he's just so out of his depth and he basically stated that like this this portrayal of him and how it came out like this was pretty like he lived with this for a long time and it sounded like it had a lot of detrimental uh, effects on him as well i don't know how this would play today because he's kind of the butt of the joke mm-hmm. in the first two episodes and that's how he's remembered as the guy whose pillow was pissed on by chris lieben and they would end uh, end up fighting on the finale. But th- this was a guy, first of all, he had no business being on this show. And I think there's a lot more of sort of, um, I think there'd be a lot more sympathy towards this guy than he received in 2005, where it was just considered comedy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the fact that like he, like what, what qualified him at all to be a part of the, the They attack. saw a video of him training in, like he did some like training, but he had never fought. They, they, they made up like fights that he had, um, but they did not exist. Like this is his first kind of serious training and uh, for, uh, and the Lieben fight is his one and only uh, fight that he has with the UFC. 
So he was deliberately almost like found and almost like mm, they made up fights in order to justify him being on the show. Yeah, I, I definitely refer more to the article, but this is what he he said to, to Chuck. I didn't have any MMA experience heading into that show. Nobody knew that I didn't have any MMA experience. This is the first time I've actually said that to anybody, but I didn't have any. It was pretty crazy when you think about it. So many people were prepared to be in that house and they knew what was coming up. I didn't have a clue. Interesting. Well, I mean, again, like it, it, it felt like maybe listening to that and certainly watching the show that he was principally just cast here to show what the average person would how they would fare in in a sport maybe as um, demanding as MMA. I think they wanted probably somebody like him in there in the training sessions to show that this stuff isn't easy and that an, an average person is going to start throwing up and, you know, we'll get gassed out and we'll be scared of being in, in, in the same environment. Um, and I don't know if they would have even expected maybe the, the type of bullying that would have been taking place on the show. But I, I mean, I can't say that it didn't make for memorable television uh, at this time. And, and the show was certainly more colorful with him being a part of the cast. Yeah, so here's here's a portion from the article, and this is Craig Pelligian. He said, you know what got me on his tape? It was that he was working out of a barn up in northern Canada, some fucking place in the middle of nowhere. This guy was looking for a shot, and that's the kind of guy we were looking for. This guy loved MMA. He was kind of quirky, but then he was hitting hay bales and smashing bags of sand and crazy workout shit in his barn. So we gave him a shot. He was one of those guys where we said, maybe, hey, we don't know. We'll see what happens. As the years have gone on, I've often thought about Thacker being cast in that nightmarish role. Did he know? No, he couldn't have. He entered that house with a knapsack of delusion, just like everyone else, thinking whatever his experience were in his neck of Canada might be enough. So it does sound like he did actually submit a tape. He okay. couldn't have known what it was he was getting into. He couldn't have known that he was being thrown into a plot where the glowing eyes of wolves would soon appear from the surrounding darkness with guys <laughs> who who would have long, illustrious UFC careers, become contenders, future champions, and become Hall of Famers. Guys who would piss on his bed. So maybe they ju- it just sound- sounds like they-, they thought he was a very colorful, unique character for reality. They, they were casting for stories as much mm-hmm. as they were. I mean, they wanted real fighters, but I think they also wanted they wanted personality and stories to tell. And if you look at it, I like that's the interesting part of the casting is that what a Dana White and a Joe Silva are looking for could be very opposed to what a Craig Pelligian is looking for or as, as well. One's yeah. producing a reality show. The other wants like, it's great that we have great television, but we also want to get some longevity out of these guys and turn them into personalities that we can market and they have to be real fighters. Mm-hmm. So, and, but, he, but I'll just say like, as, as a Canadian from Toronto, I can't say I know too many people who talk like, jason thacker like this was about as i think stereotypical of a canadian accent as maybe you you could find you know like very bob and doug mckenzie type and um you could just imagine him saying a at the end of every sentence so again maybe not deliberate but like they they managed to find like somebody who very much fits sort of like the caricature of what a, a canadian might be well, when Lieben is talking about Jason Thacker, he refers to Canada as the attic that you never go into. And <laughs> this is the beginning because we cut to Josh Koscheck saying that Lieben's attitude sucks and I want to fight Lieben. So we're already planting the seed and uh, yeah, where things build. are going. But then we get Lieben asking Forrest, who's the toughest guy in this house? And Forrest, oh, I think they're all tough. Lieben, bullshit. I think there are a couple of people here that suck shit. 
Uh, but he does isolate Nate Quarry, thinking him and me are the toughest. And of course, they have the Team Quest Alliance. And Lieben says that in his mind, he's the best fighter in the world. So a lot of positive reinforcement for Chris. You you just simply like yeah like i i don't know if you'd you'd ever want to be friends or live in a house with a person like this but the fight business thrives on a personality like this you know this is connor this is i i don't know uh floyd you know it's 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 ali like maybe maybe not to not spritzing people maybe not that far but you you love that sort of braggadocious confidence right yeah this this guy he's drunk He's stealing everyone's pillow. And then when Jason Thacker goes to have a shower, this is the famous scene where Lieben didn't pee. He spritzed on his pillow. We also got um, an R word drop here in 2005, which I, I didn't know what, what the timeline was, where that was still a word that could uh, make its way onto cable television. But apparently in 2005, that was still uh, that was still OK to go. As was, I, I guess, maybe, you know, teasing of um, um, being gay. Uh, for, yeah, yeah, for other stuff that probably wouldn't play well today. Yes, that was mm-hmm. that was in there too. And so we're pretty much just watching. Like it is the Chris Lieben show for the first half here, and then we cut to five a.m. and the wake up call from Kotura and Liddell. And already, like you're captivated because you're like, how in God's name is Chris Lieben not going to die after we've just seen this guy drunk off his mind and now has to go into an arduous training session. And dude, this guy is Ric Flair that just parties all night, but dude will go hard in the gym the next morning. Mm -hmm. And we're introduced to the grappling coach, Mark Lehman, who was a a fixture of UFC broadcasts and would do breakdowns. Ganyo Fairtex, the Muay Thai coach, and a a guy who's had a long association with Dana White, Peter Welch as the boxing uh, trainer. And so these are, three-hour training sessions, including 30 minutes of cardio running at various speeds that just broke down every single guy. Thacker admits he did not come in prepared enough. He can't even get out of the van at the end of the day of training, and he's already contemplating if he should quit. Um, So this was the light heavyweights, and then we'd flip over to the middleweights, uh, which would be Lieben. I guess guess Lieben got a bit of time to recover in the morning before his training session. So I think very much like Tough Enough, you know, one of the um, goals of this reality show is to perhaps in the public eye um, try to legitimize, you know, these sort of niche sports as something that's not just maybe a a sideshow. Like they want to show that uh, whether it be pro wrestling through Tough Enough or here in MMA, that this is a a legitimate sport that demands incredibly well-trained elite level athletes and to that extent they might even go a little bit overboard with some of this um i don't know um uh, the severity of some of the training just to get people to puke and to show your jason thackers um that are completely out of their element and that this is not for normal people um but i i thought it was very successful here you know at least in these, these this sort of opening episode to show you that hey this is a very difficult thing that it's not just you know guys stepping out out of a bar and into a cage to hit each other uh, without any skill. I think also dividing, you know, the training into four very simple elements of MMA in boxing, Muay Thai, grappling and conditioning was also a, a way to continue to begin educating your, your mainstream audience about what exactly is put into the mix of uh, mixed martial arts. You know, given the fact that this episode featured both uh, urination and puke, like, I would have thought Vince McMahon, if he had sampled this first episode, I mean, those are two of his hallmarks. Like, he loves. I like, think he would have loved this show. Absolutely. Yeah. He's vomiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, 
So next, it's the middleweight session. This is where Josh Rafferty just vomits over and over. And Josh Rafferty, he's become like, um, you know, kind of a, a kickboxing coach to uh, Dave Batista, Chris Jericho. And, you know, he's kind of uh, works a lot with Jake Hager as well. So that's kind of been his post uh, MMA career. But um, the standouts here at the middleweights, like you have some really solid fighters in Nate Quarry, Diego Sanchez, and Josh Koscheck that I would say kind of, and even to a degree, Lieben. At this point, you're most curious. You want to see Lieben fight. Like, mm-hmm. can this guy back up? Um, like, I'd say the middleweights, like, they did some very good casting here. Like, you had, you know, three, I would say, like, Nate Quarry, people forget, he challenged for uh, Rich Franklin for the middleweight championship. He did get a title fight. Diego Sanchez, we forgot Diego Sanchez won a championship. Koscheck came very close to winning a title, but never did um, as well. So again, it's like, we're not like just uh, like today when they're casting for tough and it's, it's a pretty long path to imagine that a champion's going to come out of tough. It's not unheard of, but it's not like this where you had so many like this, um, this uh, non UFC thriving scene where there were a lot of talented fighters, but just not a lot of spots in the UFC or, did, or pride for that matter. Did Diego actually win a championship? Diego won the um, – oh, sorry. He he challenged BJ for, for the lightweight championship, didn't win the lightweight championship. Right. You had a lot of title challengers and people who look good, you know, as, as title challengers as well. Obviously, people who, you know, were involved in a lot of um, classic fights. Um, but th- this this middleweight cast especially I thought was really strong. Yeah. Thacker continues to struggle and eventually he has this heart-to-heart with Randy Couture. And I thought this was like one of Randy's best scenes because mm-hmm. this is where – like Chuck Liddell, I think would have just um, he told you want to quit. You want to quit? Fuck you. You know? Yeah. Like how many people would kill, time for, kill this for this opportunity? You know, you, you get out of here. Like it would be that sort of thing. And Randy, though, is like the best dad ever. Like, you know, he's just the guy who like, will, you know, will give you a big hug. And we'll I mean, we'll be tough, but we'll also like be a lot more empathetic. Yeah. Um, he's saying, listen, at worst, you're going to get to train with some of the best coaches and you're going to get all these like all this training in and he encourages him to stay like, don't quit any, and it, this ultimately does connect with Thacker who does uh, stick around. And yeah, I thought Randy was uh, like at this time period, like he was like a pretty great, like he was a much more celebrated figure at this point as like captain America. And it's one of the, I would say unfortunate realities of the UFC, such having such a dominance that when they have a falling out with a fighter, they really get lost to history. And I don't think this current generation, if you were not watching at this time, could appreciate the like the stature of a Randy Couture that was just this, you know, before George St. Pierre. It's like here was this figure that was not the outspoken guy, but he was very much a symbolic figure of mixed martial arts. Yeah, very, very beloved. Um and uh Again, I I think a a perfect uh, usage of of a coach, especially if like part of the goal of the show is to maybe dispel the idea that these are all just sort of like, I don't know, mindless, tough guys that are Mm -hmm. uh, involved in a sport like this. Yeah, I mean, at at this time when they're marketing Chuck, I mean, dude, every other interview, it's like, are you aware that he was a certified accountant? Like they were always hammering that home, Mm -hmm. like Rich Franklin, a school teacher, like they really want the push that these are not like the the perception that many had of the UFC Lieben says about Jason Thacker. I like the guy, but he sucks shit as a fighter. And we're not here because we're nice guys. And quarry ends up uh, taking seven stitches in his chin from grappling. So we have a whole discussion about grappling and uh, being a bit too aggressive. And Lieben is just being so cocky here. He's bragging. He put cost check to sleep 
And then uh, and then we get uh, Bonner also needing stitches yeah. here. So it's a very Swick, rough. Swick, Swick to sleep. Was, right. was it Swick that headbutted Bonner? Oh, sorry. I, I was talking about uh, Lieben bragging. You, know, you said Lieben, Lieben was bragging about putting Kostek to sleep. Okay. It might have been. Uh, yeah, it might have been Swick. And this was the introduction about their, their past fights. Uh, and then we just end the show with the the team selections where this is very interesting to look back. So Chuck gets the first pick uh, overall, and he picks Bobby Southworth first. Uh, Couture picks Nate Quarry, uh, one of his uh, his students. And then it's uh, it's Chuck pinning, er, picking Josh Koscheck, Diego Sanchez, Sam Hoger, Forrest Griffin doesn't go until ninth overall. Mm. Uh, Kenny Florian, who goes to the finals, is 11th. Uh, Alex Schonauer and Josh Rafferty, while Couture's team is Corey Lieben, Stefan Bonner, Mike Swick, Loden Sincaid, Alex Karalexis, Chris Sanford, and the last pick overall, to no surprise, is Jason Thacker. Yeah, a bit surprising surprising to see Kenny Florian so far down the list, along with Stefan Bonner, or, or sorry, Forrest Griffin as well. well um, remember, Kenny Florian, like his weight class was 155 mm. and eventually would go down to 145. He's fighting at 185 pounds. Like they had to mix guys up at weight classes and he was severely undersized in, mm. in this way. Even like Diego would fight at 155 pounds. He would go down as far as 145 in his career. So you, you have guys that are mm-hmm. really several of them that are fighting way above their natural weight classes too. Yeah. But I thought, uh, you know, in my memory, I I almost like felt like every episode ended with a fight, so it, it was kind of like surprising to see this ended not with really any form of competition nor elimination, but strictly just a a, a casting, which was I think fine and, and maybe dramatic enough and satisfying enough as like you know a big sort of um moment to close a show. Overall, I thought it was a really good first episode. I thought they did a great job of showcasing several personalities, principally carried really by Chris Lieben. Totally. And, and I think um, they did a decent job of introducing elements of MMA that um, didn't even involve fighting itself. Here, it was more so about the training and how difficult MMA training is. So also a good introduction for the for the coaches. So in a, in a first episode, um, they didn't really completely give you everything that, that this show was about. But I thought it was enough to, to keep me interested. I think there's something to learn from that. I mean, it takes a confidence in your program to not feel the need that we've got to get a fight in there and get everything in the first episode. Mm -hmm. It's a common trait when we will see WWE do one of their network switches. And that first week they load everything up, but it's like, what's week two, what's week three. Do we throw everything at the wall for that first big hit? You want to make sure you do have a, a hook to come back. And they had confidence looking at this episode that, you know what? This is more about getting the personalities over yeah. than getting in a fight that may or may not deliver. Uh, Chris Lieben really was enough of, of sort of a, a, a draw that you didn't need to go to fighting yet. Not even until the third episode, which I found pretty amazing. From The Observer that week, the debut of Ultimate Fighter on January 17th after Raw did a strong 1.42 rating and 1.7 million viewers. Raw did a 3.78 rating and 4.76 million viewers. MXC, which was the most successful show of the past year following Raw, used to do a 0.9 in the time slot. So we're jumping from a 0.9 to a 1.42. for this Man, I loved MXC. I did too. I loved it watching, uh, watching it with my friends. 
They also retained 57% of the young adult males from Raw the first week and an even higher percentage the second week. That is compared to the usual 20 to 25% retention rate in the 18 to 34 age group that Spike has done with the various programs that followed Raw since getting the product in 2000. It may be the second highest rated debut of a new TV series in the history of the network. While Dana White did say he hoped for a 2.0, this number is a huge positive. The second week number is more important because a lot of shows open very strong and fade quickly. And usually by the second and third week, if there is going to be a big fade, it becomes clear. Still, advertisers who were steering clear of the product have suddenly got in- gotten interested. This is after one show. Mm. In addition, Fox Sportsnet, after seeing the rating, was on the phone wanting to do more with the UFC. And White said that the two sides have signed a new eight special deal. As noted before, it is really the finale in April that is the most important because if they can pull a big number for live fights, they will be accepted by the TV community. So wow. I, I don't know how you read this other than a home run for the first episode. The fact that you have mm-hmm. advertisers that are doing an about face on something that has years of negative connotation to it. Um, FSN wants to renew talks with them for live specials. Yeah. And you've you've found you've tapped into something that not only are you valuable, you're retaining an audience mm-hmm. that is our biggest product. That is WWE and keeping them for another hour. And I, I would really like try to think if this was strictly maybe um you know what Dana was uh, might have been considering prior to this and strictly a showcase of fighting itself for like the entire hour would that interest ha- still have been there or would it just have come and gone because it's hard to say like I'm w- when people see like okay just live fights I'm sure it would have been something like contender series now where they do some very good video packages on the stories of these guys. It's not like we just get cold fighters, but it's not this. But you're and not building the same bond as you are no, by spending it you're, two you're hours. relying on a two-minute video package for each guy, and hopefully yeah. you have an interest. I think it would have been a much harder um, – like a Chris Lieben would not have shined in a two-minute video package as he would have here interacting with everyone, getting drunk, and – being the lightning rod of the first season. Totally. And I really don't think it could be stated enough, like just how important to me, Chris Lieben is to the success of the show, especially. I argue he's the most important of season one. I have mm-hmm. always believed like you take Chris Lieben out. Th- this could have been much different. He, to me yeah. was the, the person that was going to grab the non UFC fan and be interested if for nothing else to see what's going to happen to this guy when he finally has to fight one of these guys. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we go to week number two, team challenges. Title I never want to see again. Like, I hate these challenges. I, I hated them when they introduced them on the show, and and I did afterwards. But, hey, you got to you, – you have to remember what are the common tropes of reality series, and th- this was one of them that they were going to explore here. One thing Dana says early in this episode, it's very hard to get into the UFC. And that, to me, was a huge selling point of this series at the beginning was – you presented this contract as like this real elusive prize. It's why it meant so much when Stefan Bonner unexpectedly gets a contract at the end. And you juxtapose that to, I would say even by season two, you realize like most of these guys on this season got a fight in the UFC, if not many. And mm-hmm. over the years, like there's plenty of people that get into the, the idea of becoming a UFC fighter does not hold that specialness. But in this first season, I thought it was really smart to make this contract feel like this is your lottery ticket. And there are only a few of these out there. Yeah. Very similar to tough enough or, you know, like really any number of reality shows where the goal is to simply be a part of the league, the the game, right. That, that, that's at the, at the end of all of this. Um, 
let's also remember though you know the fact that each of them probably ended up getting a ufc fight i mean these cast members even after one episode were probably immediately among your most famous ufc fighters if not mma fighters in the entire world after one episode yeah oh it was it was very smart that you would like to just take your Diego Forrest and Stefan and throw everyone to the like that would have been lunacy. Mm-hmm. So it was something that it could be novel for season one, but you had to kind of mortgage that for the future when you wanted to have as many stars as possible that this vehicle is creating. So a lot of the early part of this episode is focusing on Diego Sanchez that I think the idea was you would never want to share a house with this guy because he is really difficult to live with. And they argued over his particular shake mix how he steals the best portion of an ingredient. Then we see him. So, so the, the major heat getting spot, uh, and this is something uh, Stefan Bonner uh, confronted him with, with, was that Diego would take asp- the good asparagus in the fridge, or at least just all the asparagus. He would cut the good parts off and leave the stems back in the fridge for somebody else, which is the equivalent of just, you know, maybe, I don't know, um, taking a shit and not flushing it and instead just maybe putting it into the sink for your housemates that's just unforgivable so immediate sort of a heel sort of a dynamic here yeah forrest is like the most laid-back guy in this house and diego is not so we get like this very uh like bonner not not so passive aggressive argument where it escalates of force is just like Man, just just have some consideration for everyone Stephen, else. Stephen Bonner. Um, it was Bonner and Diego here. Okay, sorry. Yeah, it was so it it was Bonner here, and they're arguing it. Yeah, and it's it's Stephen just saying, uh, pretty much just telling Diego, and it starts to get more aggressive. And Diego, if you think you're my dad, do something about it. And Stephen's <laughs> just like giving up here. He's like, have some goddamn courtesy, <laughs> and that's his final. Uh, it, it, and we we just cut it was here, so but. stupid like like this fight over asparagus yet by the end of this i really wanted to see this fight and it's too bad that you know we we obviously would never would have been able to get it because these guys were in different weight classes but this is the type of i guess stuff you could expect with very um i don't know self-centered people living in the same house we're also focusing on chris sanford who admittedly has not shown up in great shape for the show but again it does go to what were these guys coming in expecting like if you know that the finale is in april this is being remember this is being filmed in september so if you have the belief i'm not fighting until april i'm not coming in on weight and not to say you come out of shape Mm -hmm. but it is a very different mentality to you're fighting in like six months versus you're going to be fighting potentially like uh, multiple times inside the house perhaps yeah yeah um i'd love to know maybe like what what these contracts were that these people signed you know like what what exactly was in the casting call and what was discussed in the casting call for them to be so unaware of something so important now it's time for the first team challenge the losing team member will be eliminated and the ultimate fighter will be determined on an obstacle course on the beach where the teams will have to carry their coach on this this platform like they're uh the servants for a uh, macho king uh and they have to walk through the water with this with this riser and 
this had to have been the stupidest thing that uh, Team Liddell wins, and, and we're going to get an elimination based off of the uh, the navigation through the water with their coach. Which poor Randy, dude's falling out into the water here. It's like, <laughs> what the? What am I doing here? I've got a fight in a few months. <laughs> These goofs are dropping me in the water. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I I can only maybe suggest that they felt like they needed one of these challenges and they needed an elim- elimination for the early episodes, but they also didn't want to give away a fight until later on. I I don't exactly know, but you know, these these challenges again were very much a reality show type of trope that I think they got got rid of. What season three maybe? Because they still had it for season two. This sort of thing, didn't they? They were doing these, but I don't feel they did any. Um, I don't think they did eliminations off of it. Okay, because um, I even were, remember as far as like the Ronda uh, season, they were they had them like climbing. Well, the they've always done the the coaches the coaches challenge. challenge, right? Yeah, they've always they continue to do those. Okay, um, and, and the winning team gets like cash, uh, for right. instance. So another uh, another money theme, but like these were, I would say, the strongest negatives of season one that people came out of were the challenges. Number one, um, will afford to a degree, but it was mainly the challenges that I think people uh, mm-hmm. had the biggest issue with, and and they would eventually get rid of them. So they go back to the house, uh, Lieben and Swick. This is where their fight is brought up. This took place in January of two thousand and four, where Lieben knocked them out, and they got the WEC footage uh, showing this. And Lieben will agree to give him a rematch, even if it's for free. And so this is already creating the tension between uh, Lieben and Swick and their history. I find it really interesting, especially coming from the WWE, that this show would reference an existing history between these two from a different organization at the time. This was the WEC before. Before uh, they bought it. Yeah, several years before they bought it. But, you know, it it enhanced the story. Like, it was to their benefit to to show this. And I'm sure WEC had absolutely no problem about being shown on Spike TV. Totally. Whereas, you know, very much like Vince McMahon's philosophy is to completely ignore the history that took place between any of his roster members before the WWE. Um, and often it, it, you're missing out on maybe a lot of story. So um, this immediately may be interested in a, in a possible Swick and Lehman fight. Yeah, which would never happen. They never did end up having their mm-hmm. rematch. So Randy's got to make the decision on who's leaving, and it's coming down to Jason Thacker and Loden Sincade. And both men have to state their cases. And uh, I think Randy's decision was made uh before he ever entered this gym thacker is eliminated and lieben is left to give the final the final thought on jason thacker i've got no remorse from being thrown off he sucked (laughs) and that is that is that it's and it's an unfortunate story with jason thacker like it sounds like he went through quite a lot of uh just humiliation from this and Mm. um you know just became this this figure in UFC history would fight Chris Lieben on the finale. But I mean, that, that was largely, um, yeah, that was largely his UFC career is wrapped up in these couple of episodes. It's one of the awful, like terrible side effects of reality TV where I think every show, because, you know, we're trying to fit these into uh, narratives. Um, we'll always have either a villain or maybe somebody who's the butt of a joke, but, these aren't just characters, you know, they're people with, with real lives that have to kind of retain um, a lot of the, these reputations beyond their time on screen. Um, and it, it sounds like it, it did not result in, in a very good sort of um, post-show type of um, life for him. So that's that's very sad. Um, Bobby Southworth, I thought, like in these earlier episodes had a, like he was definitely he had a great sort of like almost mm, 
motivational like good friend type of like vibe to him like as J- as jason thacker was making his exit southward pu- basically kind of pulls him aside and says tell him like whispers to him tell him tells him to like stand up straight and tells him to exit like the warrior he is so to me he was like a very big baby face at this point and but that would quickly sort of change by the end of uh maybe even episode three lieben wants to leave the house which is a big uh big no-no inside of the house and he escapes to go use a payphone, and they think he's going to be kicked out for this but uh it's couture that eventually gets his team together and says there's a lot of negative energy coming from you chris and you have to remember lieben has an enormous amount of respect for his coach randy couture mm-hmm. and and in a shirt uh, an existing this existing history part of the show yes, yes exactly so um you, you get a lot of guys just bringing up uh, the issues here. Corey speaks uh, against Lieben, again, a teammate of his. Uh, Chris Sanford brings up uh, the fact that Couture and Liddell have fought in the past, but you guys aren't bringing up your past fights. It's It was wrong of Lieben to bring up this this win against Mike Swick and create this, uh, this negative energy. And Lieben promises not to drink for the rest of the show. Sincade also apologized for his actions. And then Lieben questions Corey's loyalty. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Nate Corey definitely like fits the sort of um teacher's pet type of um role, you know. And Chris Lieben is the class clown, and um that alone I think is enough to build that little relationship. Yeah, and Nate Corey would end up getting injured in this season. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been a a favorite to to, to win um, yeah. th- this whole season. I mean, he he certainly is fast tracked after this season. I think because Too they, soon. they did. They did. Yeah, he absolutely fought Rich Franklin too soon. And I think it had uh, severe consequences on his career. And he's probably going to be remembered more for being part of this Kung Lee lawsuit. Like he's one of the the plaintiffs on that side as well. He's been very outspoken on, on that fact. The middleweight challenge is what we're going to see this week with te- the telephone pole. So what these guys have to do is to lift a, a log, stop, saw it into pieces and then carry the pieces and reattach the reattach this tree back together and has to be uh all done in uh in in quick fashion i mean how they came up with this idea is just uh this sounds like they were a lot of just like i don't know maybe strong adapted strongman competition types of things you know I'm watching this. I'm like, what the hell is the challenge going to be by week six? Like, what are we going to be like reaching the depths of our collective imaginations to come up with for these guys? So uh, Liddell wins again. And Lieben just laments what a lackluster team he has. And the ones in the vulnerable positions are Chris Lieben and Chris Sanford. And this would tell you that if they considered eliminating Chris Lieben off of this, they would have been out of their mind. Like, this is where Dana would step in and like, leave it stay. Okay. He's not Mm -hmm. getting out here unless he loses a fight. Um, But those are the two that Couture isolates and Sanford's plea. It like this guy just totally throws Lieben under the bus. He broke the rules. He left the house (laughs) and he's been a negative team member. Lieben Lieben's comeback is I was not intoxicated last night. I just drank some of Diego's wine. <laughs> and it, I'm sure this was greatly edited to a, a size, a, a, a more reasonable um, speech here for the televised version. But we pretty much go from his plea of, I just drank some of his wine. I wasn't drunk to couture. My goal is to put the best fighter on the mat. Chris is staying. <laughs> uh, I don't care if you broke the rules or uh. if you got buzzed off Diego's wine. 
Chris Sanford is leaving. And uh, and listen, it would have been nuts to have eliminated Chris Lieben here based off of this. I mean, um, I know, but the, 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 they had a really hard time making the argument that Chris Sanford, you know, needed to go. I mean, the argument, I suppose, from Randy was that Sanford was not as in shape and maybe wasn't as performing as much. Um but, you know, the show spent the, all this time basically telling us what a disruptor Chris Lieben is and how unruly he is to the rest of the team. Yet um, he's the one who stayed. But, I mean, we're all happy that I think he stayed. Probably. It obviously had to have been a conscious decision because, like, at least in these episodes, I don't know how much they get into it later. Like, you're watching this. You are not necessarily aware of the relationship between Couture and Lieben. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if this would have painted Couture in a certain way that he is ultimately, like – going with his heart here in Chris Lieben that he has the relationship with Chris Sanford is just a guy. Right. I think also maybe there's probably a, maybe more of the Vince sort of mindset of like not wanting to overcomplicate things by suggesting that, you know, there are existing relationships between and that there are all these other teams and camps that exist outside of this, this setting, perhaps. I, I don't know. Can't really speak to that. So week two, um, from the observer, the ultimate fighter with the added viewers of the lead in, as well as the first actual fight. Uh, oh, sorry. This would have been after uh, episode three. So let's just uh, uh, skip to episode three. This is this would become a theme of all seasons, which would be the weight cutting episode, which I think is um, crazy. I mean, it, it, it's insane. It's totally yeah. insane. And I mean, Bobby Southworth, I mean, here's a guy like, let's just go and give him the benefit of the doubt here that he comes into this with the belief I'm not fighting until the finale and does isn't aware he is not being paid for this. And this dude has to cut 25 pounds to make 205. He comes in at 230, which is not a ridiculous weight for walk around weight for a light heavyweight. But you would not if you're not believing you're fighting like that's not an out of shape weight for a light heavyweight by any means. Oh, man. Um, this guy has to literally torture himself. And it's just interesting that this was decided upon as like, this is a real captivating story. But to me, it's like this, I, I don't know how this would necessarily um, for, for somebody that doesn't like this to me is one of the more uglier aspects of the sport is watching these guys on the verge of death. And I don't say that lightly of yeah. like what they're asking of their body. And dude, they're literally holding up the door to the sauna, imprisoning this guy to lose weight. Like it's a really uncomfortable uh, situation, but it's, it's a total reality of how this stuff goes down. I mean, people want to just not think about it's, it's captivating television, you know, to see a human being kind of being put into this awful, like science experiment. You're basically draining a human body you know, of 25 pounds of water weight, which is just to the common person, completely unfathomable. Yet it's something that takes place um, in any sort of, I guess, you know, sport that demands uh, weight class cutting. Right. You know, and so you had Josh Koscheck here, who obviously, you know, as an Olymp- Olympic level uh, or amateur wrestler, highly experienced in, in doing something like this. And he really took a principal role in basically not just um, assistant coaching L- uh, Liddell through uh, Bobby Southward's weight, weight cut, but really being the the leader of, of this entire weight cut. Koscheck's kind of the de facto leader here. You're right, because he's the Chuck motivator. does not have right. any patience for this guy whining no. and complaining. Like Chuck is just like, dude, he's a fighter's fighter that it's just like, this is part of the job. Shut up. And yeah, but you have to look like if Bobby Southworth, again, if you're giving him the benefit of the doubt of this is all the information he was given coming into here. I mean, he is 
and they edit him in such a way here that they totally make him look like the ultimate complainer. And uh, is that is that the other competition uh, that he might the should have signed for? Complainer, yeah. <laughs> like, look at the dude. This is the, they're literally dragging him into yeah. the sauna. Um, okay, so there's this guy's not a fight in 24 hours after doing this to his body. Certainly, you can have sympathy for somebody who didn't know they were, that they were supposed to fight um, for four weeks before coming in here and having a cut on basically several days' notice. Um, they position this, and I think the show does, certainly Liddell and Koscheck do, they position this more as a battle of mental strength with um, Bobby Southworth, and they basically deem Bobby Southworth mentally weak. Yeah. Now, I... Um, question whether or not that's necessarily the case because i mean no human body i feel like would be able to endure something like this so but at the same time they did have a medical professional um check up on bobby southworth after immediately after weigh-ins and she claimed that he was perfectly fine and that you know he all his vitals were there and um almost seemed to suggest that it was more of a battle of like you know mental endurance versus physical yeah, I mean, this is just the reality of, of the sport. Like, in a perfect world, like, Wei and I would agree to fight, and we would fight at our natural weights. But that's just not how it's going to work, because you always want to have that advantage, mm -hmm. and you want to be able to be, I will cut the most amount of weight so I can balloon up and have whatever mental or physical edge I can have, that if I can suck myself down to two weight classes lower um, than what my natural weight is, I'm, I'm going to do that because you're not going, the, the famous one to me was always when we were in Quebec city and it was Sam Stout and KJ Nunes. And they both met up earlier in the, in, in the week of the fight. And both are like, like they eyed one another. They're like, how much do you weigh? How much do you weigh? And they were both around 170 for their 155 fight. I think that was around the number. They're like, you want to just fight a 170? Why are we going to do this to ourselves all week? And they were mm -hmm. like, let's shake on it. And they went to the matchmaker. Like, we're going to fight a 170. And they were like, they agreed to it. Now, the UFC doesn't always want that. Mm -hmm. um, they want you at your weight class and such. It, But they got approved for it. And they both came in at the weight that they agreed to. Now, these are two examples of two guys that were on the same page. And they weren't going to, uh, um, you know, try any, anything underhanded. But just think about that. Like, why are we going to torture ourselves all week long, put our body on, on the brink of like health and then come back 24 hours later, put that weight back on and go into a fist fight? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I I think a lot of MMA fighters, though, see it as a badge of honor that they're able to, to endure something like this before a fight. And I think maybe there's almost even an expectation that at the highest professional level, you should be able to maintain this routine without making it feel like you're going to die you know like it's it it is very much just i think a lot of people would consider a part of the job and if you don't make weight then you're not doing your job well dana tells the fight tells the coaches that fights are coming up and you need to focus on your fighters making weight added that they are not being paid for these fights they, so, they they specifically um you can listen to the audio quality of this line they specifically fit this line in after the fact mm. just as a way to tee up you know the story that would come later on of these fighters complaining about not getting paid so liddell is worried about bobby southworth and sam hoger who are both heavy and this is when the fighters learn 
as a whole that they're not being paid. Some are very unhappy about it. And this is a story that apparently um, word of their unhappiness made its way to Lorenzo Fertitta, who called Dana White and said, hey, you've got to take care of this. And this is when Dana, uh, late at night, has everyone come to the tough gym and Dana delivers the speech. And it is it is presented by Dana as I hear some of you guys don't want to fight and doesn't bring up money at all. And this is the famous line. Do you want to be a fucking fighter and fires them all up? And, you know, there's a response from the fighters that like, Hey, we want to fight, but we're not here to fight for free. Uh, But Dana gives such a speech. And this is kind of indicative of where things have gone that, there is complaints about some of these issues, but ultimately every one of these fighters in this gym stood down from this edict from Dana White and they all uh, were taken by the speech and they all fought. Well, I imagine like, I mean, there's probably a realization that they're, they have, they, there's nothing they could do about it. You know, especially when you have pl- plenty of roster members that are willing to step up and, and do, do their um, like participate. Um, Let's remember, though, the power of this dynamic is with the fighters. If these guys all banded together and demanded we want to be paid something for these fights, what are the UFC's options as they're in the midst of filming here? Mm. There was was real leverage on the fighters' part. Like, you cannot just bring in scabs to replace these guys when we're already, what, a week, two weeks into filming? I don't think it would have been... It, who knows honestly like w- they were down to uh, evidently their last 10 million dollars and um what they have recasted the entire show as a result of maybe a strike like this i mean i just i didn't think we were ever going to get to, to that point because i don't think fighters can mm, unite all i'm saying that is level. that to pacify this issue like listen the fighters ultimately did not push this so i cannot even mm-hmm. blame dane and the fertitas for like they called their bluff and they won but sure. I would just say, if you had these fighters all on the same page, they would not be asking for exorbitant amounts of money for these fights. Like, literally, I think if they were offered a couple thousand dollars to fight, that would have pacified the situation. And I don't think it's bankrupt. It's not bankrupting the Fertitas, who are on plenty of wealth. It's not as though they're, you know, hitting up for yeah. loans to be able to continue day to day. Well, it makes me wonder why they didn't announce the $5,000 knockout or submission bonus um, at this point, or maybe it was something they only I think this would have been added after the fact. I think that right. that's because you, you see him, uh, Dana, like uh, pull one of the fighters aside. I'm, I'm sure that that was probably a, you know, a compromise at the end, which at least was something. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, the fact that the show even decided to present this entire conversation and to shine a spotlight on the fact that, hey, we're this reality show is not paying these guys to fight. Um, I found it really interesting and maybe um, maybe spoke to what I felt was maybe more of an honest sort of um, presentation. Oh, you, never, you would never get this today in the, yeah. the presentation of the ultimate fighter. Like I was surprised. It's just amazing to me that as history goes on, like the speech is remembered, but I don't think the basis for the speech is connected to the fighter pay issue that I think people look back at this like this is a big Dana White breakout moment and not looking at this as I mean, boy, this just set the path for the next, you know, 18 years of a consistent criticism. So I wonder how much of their decision to include this entire topic, it was as a result of how good this Dana White speech played on camera. Like if Dana gave a shitty speech 
would they still have felt maybe the desire to include any of this on the show? No, I, th- I think this is all the speech. Like Craig Pelagian has too. called this the greatest speech in the history of reality programming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he, I mean, they watch this and I think they all, their eyes lit up. Like this is the moment of the season. And I think without the speech, this is like, this, this is the catalyst for the Dana we, we know today that he comes out as the biggest star of the ultimate fighter franchise. Yeah. Hmm. So the light heavyweights have their team challenge kayaks kayaks on the sand uh, with, do you want to describe this for us way? I mean, they, they honestly, have to, I didn't even really pay attention to, <laughs> to this. I Alex Carolexis wins. He's safe. He's safe. He, he doesn't have to fight, but the loser, the person coming in last place is Bobby Southworth. So he is last and therefore has to pick who he's going to fight. And he has one day to cut all of this weight as Liddell calls him a whiner and complainer. And Dana's off just telling Chuck, he's got no heart. He's got no heart. Yeah. I found it really interesting seeing like the teams get together to um, talk about who they would want to fight on the other team. You know, they're they're basically assessing the weak points of the team Couture. And I I really enjoyed like their group analysis of who they think like matchmaking is such a big part of MMA and, 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 you know, among individual training teams themselves, like deciding in management and and thinking what's a good matchup for somebody. Um, And you got glimpse of that. Chuck is stating, I would want to go after the toughest guy. So it's going to make it easier for the challenges for us. And you take out that it'll be a killer for them to lose one of their big guns. Um, but Southworth, he's going for the low hanging fruit. He sees Lodinson Cade as vulnerable and Southworth has to lose now. I, I guess he's lost some weight, but he's still got 20 pounds to go. While Sincade is barely 205 pounds. He'll come in underweight at 202.5 pounds. So this guy's just eating like a machine he has it's the total polar opposites as southworth is about to go through 24 hours of torture with chuck liddell and josh koscheck through the sauna and this is this will become a staple like every season there would be one of these episodes with the brutal weight cut i mean it's dramatic as hell like what what reality show or any product on television puts a human body through this amount of i torture right um and they're for whatever reason under sort of um the ability where they could legally put somebody through this and, and show this on screen. It's, it's incredibly dramatic and you got some incredible scenes here of again, cost like Southward just feeling like he's dying, wanting to leave the sauna and cost check and Liddell just literally dragging the guy in and locking him in there. It's, it's really incredible. And at the time shocking for me, you know, uh, as somebody who'd had no idea this was a part of MMA. Yeah. I mean, certainly like, like what, what what documentation would there have been of of a weight cut at least in in MMA sort of um uh, contacts prior to this on video I would imagine most people have never seen something like this like only people in and around the sport that have been in person to to see this like this is not this, this was not showcased in any kind of um like uh like the, the, I, I don't think there would have been anything to kind of put such a spotlight on this aspect of the sport, unless you're somebody directly involved in the sport. And mm-hmm. just the times we've been around fighters, the day of a fight, like it's jarring to see these individuals and what they do to their bodies. They are they are walking corpses, some of them. Mm-hmm. Like it is. Um, and then when you consider the fact that these guys not only have to recover, they have to fight in the, the very next day. And yeah. you just have Dana nonchalantly explain. You know, that's why we do weigh-ins the day before, so they can get healthy. Yeah. You know, we give them a day. Yeah. yeah, 
Dr. Margaret Goodman is here and, and clears him to to go through and basically like she kind of says, yeah, he was just whining. <laughs> like that's how yeah. I kind of took it, you know? Yeah, I, I I don't know. It's like th- th- these are not uh, scared or weak individuals uh, like it's like this is an incredible amount of weight that this guy is, is shedding. Yeah. And then we get like just kind of back and forth promos to set up the fight. And this is our first example of leading up to a fight. And you've got your story here. The story is really Bobby Southworth, who just makes it at 206 pounds with the one pound allowance. And now he's taking on the guy that has not had to have any, any weight cutting. No, none at all. Um, And I think Sincade very much felt like he was uh, hoping for Southworth not to make it. And, and you kind of got, got the vibe that he was almost a, a little bit scared and unsure of himself um, prior to the, the to being in this uh, fight and, and in this competition anyway. The fact that he realized he had to now fight and against somebody who was bigger. Yes, he did. You know, uh, he was also a guy who went through a weight cut. But I think reality started to maybe set in for some kid that he was about to enter a fight that he where he was the likely underdog. So the fight, it is it is two five-minute rounds. John McCarthy making his Ultimate Fighter debut. And uh, Southworth comes in, gets a takedown to side control. There's a lot of clinching against the fence, several reversals, and then they separate. And they're trading knees in the clinch. We get out of the first round, and in the second, it's a three-punch combination by Southworth that drops Sincade. And dude, John McCarthy with the ultimate leap in to stop this one it was and by the way the size of this had to be the largest octagon i've ever seen you don't think it was just a standard size it looked gigantic i I, even like the largest version of the octagon this this looked so big really could it just be because it's in in a big smaller venue i don't know i I would be like is this this actually bigger than later seasons I think so. Like it was jarring really? to me just how big the the surface was here. But hmm. dude, McCarthy, you have to watch this dive. I mean, he's, this guy was not- he's amazing. Oh. And, and again, like just goes to show that this is um not just you know um, human cockfighting. I mean, you have very highly skilled, or at least you hope that you have very highly skilled you know people who are there to protect somebody from a knockout loss. I I, I want to talk a bit about maybe the presentation of just simply presenting the fight like this. Yeah, I, no, I, no commentary. Like, yeah. th- tell me your thoughts. Just I bet you there was probably quite a bit of debate about whether or not they would have commentary, or I don't know, cr- a crowd in there, or music or something, because it's well, the very crowd. They did not like. They were very cognizant of. They did not want these results to get out and i think that right. was the the crowd decision right okay but i mean it's it, this was sort of like the pandemic era you know style of presentation before uh, the pandemic right very unusual for television especially for like a combat sport to present in such a small intimate uh, setting but it completely worked and and really has become a hallmark of i think this this show the fact that these fights have no crowd no commentary just somehow makes these battles like feel a bit more pure and a bit more intense like this is about as much of a sort of like it it, it, again it's the most understandable form of human competition uh or inter or just like any species you know the the like any form of competition that takes place just involves a battle and, and and fight with your limbs and no other weapons and the fact that there was sort of no other production attached to it you're only seeing that you're hearing the teammates provide really the soundtrack they're shouting you know um uh instruction and and they're getting emotionally invested in themselves 
I, I think it just worked so well. And let's also remember, this is the third episode. So we've spent like three hours with these people, getting to know them. We know exactly what Bobby Southworth has gone through in order to make it to this fight. We know that Loden Sincade is here without a job, without a home, and he needs this you know, contract in order to really make something of his life. So we're coming in here with incredible motivation and understanding of the characters involved. We know what they're fighting for. And the moment they start fighting, I mean... I got hooked, you know, into MMA, it, like just because of that, because I knew what they were fighting for. Every punch, every potential knockout was something that um, could have been life changing for one of these guys. And that to me was exactly how you wanted to present MMA for people. It's what they did such a great job of focusing in on was just what it means to win and more importantly, what it means to lose. And there mm-hmm. were so high stakes involved for a gym fight. And they showed you, like, as much maybe as they showed Southward Celebration, I thought they focused even more on Sinkate's loss. And one of the more, most memorable lines to me of the entire season was the doctor checking on Sinkate. And, you know, she's asking, like, yeah, are, you, are you okay? Do you have any headaches or, or nausea? And Sinkate responds, do you have anything for a broken heart? Oh. Which was this, um, you know, it tells you all you need to know about, I think, um, the emotion somebody feels, not just from winning, but from losing as well. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, it's an unfortunate part looking back at this season. Um, everyone knows that Stefan Bonner passed away, but uh, Lodens and Kate also died a couple of years ago as well. So it's uh, like wow. two people, uh, part of this cast that are no longer with us. But I thought this was where we got a fight at the end. You saw sort of all the personality stuff that, to your point, led to like this great story, interest in the fight coming out of it. You got the reactions from Liddell and Couture afterwards, Dana giving his breakdown of it. It was like, to me, okay. Yes, we have the challenges and and all this other stuff, but at the end of the day, like I think you are hooking people on the actual fight too, mm-hmm. caring about the outcome. And this is where it felt like Ultimate Fighter is not going to be this series where you just tune in at the beginning out of curiosity and it's going to fade. Instead, this is growing and it would only get larger in episodes to come where uh, several episodes later is the famous scene where it is Chris Lieben and getting bullied by Bobby Southworth and Josh Koscheck and the infamous line, because Lieben will talk about his estranged relationship with his father and Southworth calling him a fatherless bastard. And it was this huge scene, like Lieben destroys part of the house and you're led to believe Lieben's getting kicked off the show and everyone is brought together. And Dana's basically says like, this is the ultimate fighter. And we're going to do Koscheck versus Lieben next week. And when that show ended, I was like, holy Christ, you're going to make people wait a week for this fight. And at that moment, I was like, this thing is a giant hit because it was yeah. going to be an, and they pulled a great, great number for that Lieben Koscheck fight the next week. And that, that to me, it that was the key of season one. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the interpersonal relationships, like people that are, I think, as, um, I don't know, interesting to watch on screen as a Josh Koscheck or Chris Levin or Bobby Southworth. Um, people, and again, like you have to remember, like this is purely professional wrestling for me. You know, it's about building characters. It's about caring about the people that you're watching fight. It's about giving the audience an understanding of what pe- two people are fighting for. Um, and I thought this show did that so well compared to the, the the stuff I was actually watching on WWE Raw, where just like you're you're used to you know being presented a million matches that have no real consequence or outcome. Half the time you don't even care about who's you know in, involved in the matches anyway, especially of the 2005 era. So this was a complete breath of fresh air for for me. That completely was a was a total an, um, antidote to 
some of my my issues with the WWE at the time. Okay, so here's something coming out of uh, episode three from The Observer. The third episode of Ultimate Fighter had a 63% retention rate from Raw in the male 18 to 34 demo. That's the new all-time record for a show following Raw in that demo. Almost as much as the rating, the male 18 to 34 demo is the main stat that Spike was looking for based on the programming idea. This is done without any cross-promotional help from WWE, which from most accounts is not happy with the success of the show after originally greenlighting it. And I should add that it's been it's been said over the years that Vince McMahon had to give his approval for this. There's also been a, a former programmer um, with with Spike who had stated that was not the case, but sounded more like it was presented to WWE. They want their they want their big programming partner to be on board for this, but Vince did not have the power to stop this. So it's somewhere in there. But yeah, they never plugged this like throughout Raw. Like they did not um, push this. It was not like we were just. Did they did they push any of their other shows? Like, did they push Joe Schmo or or anything else like that? They they would advertise th- th- those um, huh. at, at times. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, it also winds up making the case that the wrestling audience and MMA audience in the U.S. is a lot more similar than either side, particularly the UFC, has ever wanted to acknowledge. One time years back, when Vince McMahon was talking about starting his own MMA promotion or buying the UFC, he made the comment that quote. Our audiences are the same. They just don't know it yet, which is a very interesting line from Vince McMahon. Then again, I have a feeling he may have at one point said the same thing about bodybuilding. One person (laughs) with knowledge of what happened during the filming of Ultimate Fighter who is not affiliated with Zufa and who has watched the episodes unfold each week said he was amazed at the amount of, quote, poetic license that is taken in telling the stories. He pretty much indicated things didn't happen quite as they were presenting them. Bobby Southworth wrote on a website his version of what happened related to the January 31st weight cutting show. He said he was out of shape when he showed up for the original tapings. He was given word late. He was going to be on the show and said he was told he would only have to make weight if he was in the finals. Since the finals were in April and the show was taped in the winter, in his mind, being close to 205 pounds wasn't a concern. There are things even he didn't write about that also affects his situation. UFC took both applications and recruited fighters for the show. The idea was to have heavyweights, light heavyweights, and middleweights. When they couldn't get a good enough quality of heavyweights, they dropped that weight class. Because of the stringent background tests as it pertained to criminal records in the drug testing, a lot of people originally picked ended up being eliminated. There were others who would have been picked but had contracted fights that would have interfered with the tapings, so they were also out. Southworth, who is a better and far more experienced fighter than most of those on the show, did not send in an application but was recruited at the last minute because so many guys failed the screening process that they needed more fighters. He had been training much and was out of sh- he had not been training much and was out of shape. One of the things noted is that of the light heavyweights, most on the show, like Loden Cade, who was cut, Mike Swick and a few others are really 185 pounders who they moved up a weight class because they didn't wind up with enough real light heavyweights. Five days before his fight, Dana told Chuck that his light heavyweights looked overweight and they could fight within five days and have to make weight. At that point, Bobby Southworth was 237 pounds and was also a little under the weather. He dieted harshly for four days and got down to 226 when he got the word that he was fighting on two days notice. He had one day to make 206 pounds. He said he knew he could do it, but would be whining the whole time. He put over Josh Koscheck because he said he'd never cut more than 14 pounds. And since he never wrestled at a high level, he had only cut to make weight five times in his life. He said Chuck Liddell was there for him, but Chuck had the attitude to basically shut up, don't complain, and do it, which is Liddell. As you can see, Liddell has zero tolerance for whining and complaining. 
He said that in five days, he ended up cutting 31 pounds and then had to knock out a friend of his in the end. Oh, man. Yeah, it really is insane when you kind of uh, put it into that perspective. Um, but yeah, this would be a running theme, I think, with a lot of MMA sort of um, television or or maybe documentation is just maybe the sort of um, the stress of a weight cut. I remember the Ronda season had a very um, dramatic weight cut where I think the, the person actually failed and Ronda kind of like cut weight took, with her. Yeah, and, and almost like seemed to take it very personally. Um, so it's one of the most dramatic elements, I would say, of MMA, you know, are these weight cuts. So we're going to move on over to the finale card and the fight that is going to be the most famous uh, from this season of Ultimate Fighter, and that is the light heavyweight finale between Boris Griffin and Stefan Bonner, April the 9th of 2005 at the Cox Pavilion in Las Vegas. As uh, Griffin, 26 years of age at this time, Bonner is 28, and man, was this 2005 in a nutshell. We had Adrian Grenier from Entourage in the front row. And then uh, Mike Goldberg and a young Joe Rogan calling this with uh, Herb Dean as your official. And I think Kevin James was in the crowd. Kevin um, James was showing. Um, yes, the uh, th- there was quite a a, uh, a usual celebrity set. Like uh, Michael Clark Duncan was mm-hmm. always at these shows. He was there Ian too. Bade was at a lot of these shows. So um, yeah. you did have, but again, a very small venue that they were at here. This was the card. It aired live on Spike and was headlined by Ken Shamrock and rich franklin as well so the first mma car sorry ufc card at least on on national or cable television what what they had had, they had had fights on fox Sportsnet, but this was the first time this was the first time they had had live fights on on a network okay so the first round um like this is a fight that i mean it was just this slugfest back and forth like it's very sloppy but that's the charm of this fight and this crowd going nuts let's also remember prior to this like the first fight on the show sanchez and florian wasn't a great fight no it wasn't the type of fight where um you're like i gotta watch more of this you know It, it was just kind of a fight right Sanchez yeah. won decision, and that was kind of it. He was a big favorite, and he just destroyed Kenny Florian in that fight. And they were they were aware. It looks like, man, we really need something here. And these guys came out and and delivered it. Uh, the first round, it was a Griffin round. He's the aggressor. They're just he's throwing big looping rights. They go to the ground, but then Griffin gets up from underneath. Both can in, continue to land on one another, and then Griffin gets him down off the fence and takes his back, but loses it. Tries for the arm bar as the round ends and Griffin said one of his biggest mistakes was he stayed laying down on the ground. And it was like this weight that just came down on him. And he said in between rounds, he just lost all of his, like all of his energy. And he's always encouraged fighters at the end of a round, just pop back up, get up, do not just lay there um, because he just pretty much had a, a total adrenaline dump in the second round. Yeah. And I apologize. I said it was a decision. It was actually a first round uh knockout here with sanchez and florian yes yes but, yes but i guess i don't know to me it wasn't really all, all that memorable of, of a bout um anyway this first round how would how did you score it? i scored the first round for griffin yeah it was close. I, I thought it was so close that i couldn't really pick a winner um but i i i thought really the story of it was the fact that you could hear immediately the buzz from this crowd they gave a standing ovation for this first round you know it was about as action-packed and back and forth as you could you could ask so joe rogan called it the greatest round he's ever seen and was the Hagler hearns of 
MMA. I mean, it was a great round, but uh, th- th- this was a little much. There's a bit of promotion in there, I think, from Joe wanting to maybe overemphasize, you know, just how special this might have been. The second round, uh, Bonner is the one getting off his strikes and landing. Griffin takes him down, but Griffin gets cut, and he is all busted up here to the point they have to stop the fight to check on his cut, which could you have imagined had they ended this off a cut in the second round? History would have changed. They continue. Griffin is landing knees from the clinch that Bonner is blocking, and then Bonner blasts him with these pair of knees from the clinch and ends the round with several big jabs that land. So I had it even after, after two rounds, Bonner winning the second round. And that sets up a pretty dramatic third round. And I totally forgot about this, but had it somehow made it to a draw, which I didn't see it becoming after three rounds, they would have done a third, uh, a fourth round that would have been three minutes. Mm-hmm. But it would now, have been that, pretty is, tough to, it, to have was, a draw after three rounds. Is that standard? Like, no. like, no. like, is it only for the Ultimate Fighter? And have they even like suggested this rule for future Ultimate Fighter finale? No, I, I, I don't think they've ever done this since. Right. Interesting. It's not even a full five minute round. It's like a three minute round. It's very, yeah. very odd. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could get to a draw. And in fact, like I on my scorecard, I had the first round as a draw. And if you gave one round each of any of the other rounds, you could have ended there. Yeah. Well, the third round, uh, it's gripping now using the tie clinch. And they're both you can see both guys are totally gassed in this third mm-hmm. round. And they're just trying to preserve themselves to have something in these last five minutes bonner's jabbing he's trying to counter the audience gets to their feet with a minute to go like this was great television mm-hmm. and they're doing a great job of cutting to dana who's losing his mind the crowd's on their feet like the atmosphere was pretty great here and bonner tries a spinning wheel kick and then griffin lands with knees in the closing seconds and it's just two guys swinging at one another it's a just total classic ending here and this was a really tough round but i i did give it to griffin so i did have the scorecard that uh the the judges did have which it was a 29 28 from all three judges for forrest griffin and and this crowd booed actually like you know not everybody but there was a really really good portion of this crowd that booed the result and called bullshit because in their minds they a lot of people thought stefan bonner was the one who actually won the 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 match Uh, or should i say steven let's have a hand for steven bonner talk about adding insult to injury not only do you lose this match you lose your place in history you also get your name called wrong at the end of the announcement oh man buffer i mean dude this was the most like editorializing i can ever recall bruce buffer after three of the greatest rounds of action ever seen in the ufc (laughs) as he's reading this decision out and dana Everyone remembers, okay, he gets the six-figure contract, but we forget. The man won a 2005 <laughs> Scion, a dirt bike, and dude, here's a watch. Well, those are nice I would bonuses. love to know what happened to this dirt bike. Yeah, yeah. what happened to the Scion? You know, Scion. Did, did, did Forrest Griffin end, end up uh, keeping and, and driving the Scion? Uh, does, does do, training do you think he's camp? driving the Scion to the Apex when he his uh, one of his roles now is one of the catchers in the power slap? When a guy goes down, he's there to catch them. Is he actually? Oh yeah, he's a catcher. <laughs> How did he get involved? In, I mean, I guess he's a part of their ecosystem, but like he, he works, he still works with the UFC. Like when they did all their really? cuts afterwards, like yeah. Forrest kept his job because of the fighters that got jobs there. 
Forrest really did actual work oh. and he was retained and he's worked there all the all this time since retiring. Now he's a part of Power Slap. All he's right. there as a catcher as well as well. And and then I would say like maybe the most like memorable moment. Again, the UFC contract was presented as so elusive throughout this mm. whole season. Like here we've got two contracts up for grabs in these weight classes and they announce on the spot and this totally legit obviously that Stefan Bonner is also getting a six-figure contract. You couldn't have scripted this better to end with this incredible moment that Bonner, like you would have been out of your mind that this guy wasn't going to get another fight with the UFC, but it was so wise to just make this big announcement on the spot as they did. Totally, absolutely. You know, in my mind, I I, I often, like I'm, I'm watching this back and I'm thinking, how could this have been scripted better? Okay, like it, it was a perfectly scripted fight, even from like a pro wrestling perspective. Okay, you have a spectacular first round where everybody is immediately paying attention. They get a standing ovation for the first round here, you know, with this sort of action. Second round, it's all about establishing the heel and the baby face. And not to say you have, you know, Stephen Bonner as a heel, but you certainly have Forrest Griffin as the underdog baby face. His face is cut up. He's gassed out. It's very close to ending here. And it's all about building his comeback. Um, he's not giving up, you know, despite like being very, very close to it in the third round, he comes back and he ends up winning the thing. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, would this have been like, what was missing from this? What would have, would a knockout or a submission have really kind of like made this even that much more perfect? Um, and maybe not because then how would you have necessarily yeah. justified giving like both of them contracts? It's it, such it, a memorable scene of the decision being read and Bonner just collapsing when it's read. Like it's, it's yeah. really dramatic. Yeah, it, it was honestly perfect, and I thought it ended up being the perfect showcase for a new fan of the highs of what an MMA fan may experience by watching the sport. This is the type of like special feeling in sports that I think happens so rarely. For it to occur in a fight with as high stakes for the promotion as something like this, like – I mean, the Fertitas, you know, to, I guess to use a casino term, like they really did hit the jackpot with this being the closing fight of the of the season. Yeah. And I will always remember this was um, we so this is on a Saturday night and the next night on, on the law. I know that this is going to be clearly like the biggest thing that we're going to talk about and and focus on is, you know, the finale fight, this fight between four between Griffin and Bonner. And I think it was me that reached out. I can't remember too much, but we we reached out to like this PR team that like arranged for like different UFC fighters to come on the show. And we wanted to try and get Griffin on the show afterwards. And they come back. Would you want to have Griffin and Bonner like amazing separately? No, they'll come on together. And we got the two of them 24 hours after this fight on and they're joking about the fight and they're like, how are you feeling? And how are you feeling? And to me, it was one of the coolest interviews that we got these two on together 24 hours after this fight. Um, so so yeah. cool. Yeah. So there you go. And, you know, Griffin, he would go on. He he won his next two fights. And then, dude, he's fighting Tito Ortiz uh, within a year of, of this of this fight. And after he loses to Tito Ortiz, but it was one of the fights where, again, there was still all this skepticism about the tough fighters and could they really compete with the big guns at the UFC and Forrest loses, but man, does he win over people in terms of like, he went three rounds with Tito Ortiz and he's a real guy. And Mm. then he gets the big win against Shogun in 2007 and then beats Rampage for the light heavyweight title in uh, July of 2008. Uh, only holds it 
until his next his very first title defense. He loses it to Rashad Evans, but would have two more fights with Ortiz in his career. Retired in 2012 and went into the UFC. Him and Bonner went into the UFC Hall of Fame for this fight. Bonner had like you can honestly look at this. This was maybe the peak of Bonner's career. His like they this was the famous fight. And I would say almost no one remembers that they did a rematch a year and a half later. And it was so evident how farther Griffin had gone in that time than Bonner. Um, Griffin wins the fight. It's not anywhere as memorable as this one. And then Bonner fails his drug test after that fight. And I mean, Bonner would stick around. He would fight. He would have fights with John Jones and Anderson Silva, but I think he was just not a championship caliber fighter. Um, And then leaves the UFC after the Silva fight and then has his final fight of his career in 2014 against Tito Ortiz in Bellator, a very famous setup inside of the cage for that one with the unmasking of Justin McCulley and, um, and then died last December uh, due to an accidental fentanyl overdose. And he had, he had a lot of issues with, with him later in his career. And it's, it, it was just a really tragic story with Stefan Bonner. He was 45 when he passed away last year. That's yeah, incredibly young, incredibly sad. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know. You can't help but wonder, like, okay, if the decision was different on this evening, would the courses of, of their careers or even their lives have been any different? I I wonder. Or or maybe not. You know, it's, I don't it's, think so. You don't think so? You think there's just something with getting He's getting, like, the same contract. Yeah, but, I mean, there's also, I think, maybe more of an internal – who knows like mental you know motivation to know that you are the winner or you are the person who lost or at least even in the audience's mind or in terms of uh i don't know um audience expectation or sponsorships or who knows what else um but but you're right like he was at a level of notoriety that i think you know might have might have been uh, on a similar level to forest um like he was he was a big star coming out of this like he he headlined some fight night cards he was you know he was in a position to succeed but it was Mm -hmm. um you know he he was also based in vegas and you know that's that's a tough place sometimes if you you're suddenly uh force was too um when he was yeah training at extreme yeah yeah he's been in vegas for most of his uh career still obviously based in vegas but um it's it's not the city for everybody as well so this is uh coming out of the finale again going back to the observer here executives from spike were going crazy as were the 2000 fans at the cox pavilion in vegas saying that they couldn't believe the fight let alone it appearing on their network earlier in the show ufc had confirmed a second season of ultimate fighter this time based around welterweights and heavyweights they had already taken applications from fighters and will be shooting soon no air date was mentioned but one would think it would start in september with the beginning of the new season so the way this story is always gone earlier in the show they were promoting this applications for the next season but every single time the fertitas and dana they have always stated after this fight they met out in the parking lot and signed the contract for season two of the ultimate fighter i can see both being true that ufc was going to do a second season regardless and obviously spike like by this point it was just a matter of putting pen to paper um and they were spike was paying for it this time around Spike, yeah because as soon as they're signing this contract lorenzo's like well what are you going to pay us for yeah. this next season they came to the agreement this would also open up fight night specials like dude spike would have been out of their minds and there would have been networks lining up to jump on this if it wasn't for them like it would have so it's like the narrative is that griffin and bonner saved the ufc it's like man we were so far at at a point now where it is a nice story but had this fight failed 
I don't think the ultimate fighter would have been done after this right. season. Like the numbers were too strong from the season that I think they would have had a season two regardless. And they were going to go ahead with one anyway, like if they're already taking applications. And I think there would have been plenty of other networks that would have been interested if, if for whatever reason, remember spikes also by this point, they're out of the negotiations with WWE. They know they're losing WWE later this year to USA. U- UFC is entirely uh, more valuable to them as their key programming. But but how much do you think the fight might have amplified interest in the UFC in general? Oh, I think aesthetically, like it it helped. Like it it gave them sort of this like it was their positioning of like a WrestleMania one, for instance, of like mm. here is the seminal moment instead of just like some bland fights that aired, like you just had this moment that you could mark it as the biggest fight in UFC history and the most important fight as they've touted it to be. Um, but anyway, uh, goes on to say here, despite a press release that labeled it knockout ratings, the 1.96 rating and 2.6 million viewers were below expectations of 3 million viewers. The viewers were a record for the series and, uh, goes on to say a USA article on Dana White on April 11th talked about negotiations for a third season as well, along with Spike looking at the UFC video library, which dates back to 1993 for specials highlighting old fights. And this would just be the beginning. Kevin Kay, who is Spike's executive VP of programming, was quoted saying, we think we're on to the next big emerging sport and said that they were also considering live events. The positioning of UFC and white in the recent media articles is very reminiscent of 1984 with WWF and Vince McMahon. White, from the day he took over the promotion, envisioned a weekly TV show in the mold of USA Network's old Tuesday night fights. Now, when that is closer to having a chance to be reality, there is suddenly cold feet. The reality show idea was not UFC's, but it was its only way to get a national show at the time, since Spike would only put UFC on with the concept. Now, there is a fear that the talent pool isn't large enough to provide weekly quality fights and the belief that they have created legitimate stars through the reality show. Well, it, it would turn out that they would have uh, more than enough and Spike would become the US the UFC network for years to come. And they would create a new several, you know, generations of uh, emerging pe- uh, fighters, you know, getting to the UFC, uh, I'm sure largely as a result of the success of the promotion, but maybe even directly related to this reality show as well. So there you go. A, a snapshot of the ultimate fighter in 2005, a, a super, super important part of the UFC's history that it could have been like the idea that the UFC does not make it without this, um, franchise this first season um is like that is not some like urban legend like that mm. could have been the outcome here if this did not succeed and when these things hit a lot of its luck like the had you not gotten a chris Lieben, had you not had certain aspects that came into the house like if you didn't get that raw slot like one of the things i was reading was like one of the ideas was putting this on a saturday night on spike that could have greatly affected things if they weren't able to piggyback like that's a huge huge part as much as we talk about chris Lieben, it's the lead-in they have from wwe that is just as important totally yeah a, a, a wide number of factors you know that really could have gone on uh into the success of this but you know it's it's one of those sort of um uh, I don't know, um, stories uh, in combat sports history that I was never around for, um, I guess, the, the you know, the, the WrestleMania one boom of, of the WWE or even like the early days of uh, the rock and wrestling connection. But I was around for this. So I I feel like, you know, um, I could organically pinpoint exactly the reasons why this was such a success. And it also tells you that like, Maybe anytime you need one of these sort of breakthrough things, it needs to be something beyond 
what you're presenting week to week. Whereas like, you know, maybe rock and wrestling had, I don't know, Cindy Lauper or Mr. T um, UFC had a reality show and maybe it tells you why, like, you know, an AEW has maybe invested as much as they have into something like their own attempt at a reality show or the video game um, and, and, and maybe outside projects like that beyond the wrestling. The last thing I want to read um, is from uh, a great book here. This is this is No Holds Barred by uh, Clyde Gentry III. And uh, I know I've done a lot of reading here, but this is the last oh, one. Oh, yeah. That's great. So um, we, we go back um, regarding the Ultimate Fighter. The show created numerous stars for the promotion, even the ones who didn't win. And it even gave way to a new fandom term, tough noob <laughs> fans who started watching ufc post ultimate fighter the show also did the one thing that zufa needed to stay in business increase pay-per-view buy rates ufc 40 which was the first tito and ken shamrock fight in 2002 did 150,000 buys and would be quickly squashed by the first pay-per-view to air after the first ultimate fighter series ended ufc 52 where chuck liddell became the light heavyweight champion by defeating randy couture pulled in 280,000 buys the pay-per-view model that zufa desperately needed to take effect was now in full swing Spike TV also gave the UFC two other shows, a clip show called UFC Unleashed and a live show, Ultimate Fight Night Live. Two years after the first season, Spike TV reportedly paid Zufa over $100 million for the rights to the series, and the network now picked up production costs. So you go from the Fertitas funding $10 million for season one to now they're getting a check for $100 million. And uh, Chuck Liddell became the new face of Zufa's UFC becoming the first MMA athlete on the cover of Sports Illustrated and knocking out countless opponents in his wake. Zufa now had a formula for their success. Build up the two pay-per-view headliners by having them coach a season of The Ultimate Fighter and also develop an endless amount of new stars who will eventually take over the old guard. Tough season one winner, Forrest Griffin, returned to coach in the seventh season. Although The Ultimate Fighter did exactly what it was supposed to do, producers of the show needed a little more zip from one-time host Will Afford and coaches Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell. They found what they needed in looking for uh, in the F-bomb dropping Dana White, who was never afraid to speak his mind and became something of a real Vince McMahon for the sport. And as Bob Myrowitz says, the only star they really created, and it turned out to be very good one, a very good one, by the way, was Dana White. And... um yeah, I mean, Dana very much does become the face of this franchise through all the years, the um, the unconventional Jeff Probst. But yeah, seismic change for the UFC uh, after the Ultimate Fighter season one. Do you have any uh, any final thoughts, Wade, just going back and the, the nostalgia, too, of going back to the Ultimate Fighter? Well, I really enjoyed the selection from Jake, and we'll be hearing from Jake shortly about um, his, his topic uh, or his selection. But um it, uh, you know, I, I, I myself, I, I think I've always been a fan of reality TV and, and I feel like, um, maybe often it, it, it sort of is, is faced with, um, a reputation that it's like cheap and, um, I don't know, not mm, something that is artistic, but I, I very much disagree when it's done well. And, and as a tool of, of marketing, I see it very much as just an extension of professional wrestling to me. You're trying to sell personality. You're trying to create storylines in a believable sort of like real world context. And um, this was a great example of, of, of it being done really well um, with incredible effect. Totally. Um, I think I'm sometimes harsh on, reality television programming way but when, well, when done a lot, right there's a lot of bad there's a lot of bad out there um but i i also think it's it's really difficult to do well what what are what are the current ones that you're keeping up with 
of, of recent uh, times? Um, I, I'm not really watching any right now. I'm watching a lot of like um, reality game shows, um, like competition game shows on Netflix. Squid Game, the challenge has been was mm-hmm. excellent. It was really well done. I also highly recommend The Devil's Plan, which is a Korean um, competition game show. Um, yeah, so that that's all I'll say. I, I'm almost too embarrassed to talk about some of these other ones. Oh, my my wife is making me watch. All right. At this point, we're going to welcome in uh, Jake, who has sent in the following message with his thoughts on The Ultimate Fighter Season 1. Hi, John Way. Just wanted to leave you both a message. And thank you guys so much for accepting my offer to review the first season of The Ultimate Fighter, as the finale itself was actually the first time I've ever seen anything mixed martial arts. This choice became clear to me shortly after Stefan Bonner's unfortunate passing a year ago this month and realized what better choice to pick for my second rewind away than the series itself that started the exploding popularity of the UFC. I was the very tender age of nine years old, watching the finale at my uncle's place, who was also becoming a fan through the series and wanted to watch the card live, especially the Bonner and Griffin fight. I had already been a huge WWE fan for two years going into this, and was filled with curiosity when I saw two fighters duking it out in an eight-sided cage. I was thinking to myself, what is this stuff? This is not pro wrestling. But I was so intrigued and never forget yelling and cheering when witnessing Bonner and Griffin doing an all-out slobber knocker. I didn't become a diehard fan of the UFC until Brock Lesnar came over two years later. But this event was probably the best stepping stone to begin a fanhood. Watching back the entire series, I have huge respect for the mental toughness of individuals who might have had an injury and pushed right past it, still winning his fight, etc. That's one aspect of what martial arts is about when competing. Also, another thing I loved, when you see a complete douchebag like Chris Lieben, who always talks too much about his record and how good he is and then lost all of his fights, which proves another thing, that as a fighter... You must also have a good character and good morals, or you can get swallowed up, or you can get swallowed up in your own bullcrap. So again, be humble. Again, thank you both so much for all you do each and every week, and I'm looking forward to your review. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you very much, Jake, for your thoughts and also for the selection. Um, hopefully, you enjoyed this review, and hopefully, a lot of you guys who are also MMA fans or um, Ultimate Fighter fans might have enjoyed this as well. All right, we're going to tee up our next Rewind Away, but uh, we do have a piece of feedback here from Brandon in Oshawa, who writes in that this season was so good that it actually led to me hating MMA. At the time, I wouldn't even call myself a fan, but I was interested. I read news and followed along with what was happening in the UFC. When this show started, it was everything that I enjoyed about wrestling in a UFC show. It had guys who were entertaining, some solid fights, and even some interesting storylines, in particular Lieben against Koscheck. I was obsessed with it. I would listen to the Ultimate Fighter theme at school to hype myself up for the next episode. Then Bonner Griffin happened, and it was incredible. They got me, and I was as into it as someone could possibly be. But I realized it was never going to get as good as that. I stayed into it for a few more years, watched a couple more seasons of this show, and even ordered a couple of pay-per-views. But nothing compared to this season. Then it started to get more popular, and it didn't feel like the cool thing that only I was into anymore. Now I can't stand it. I still read some results, but I will likely never watch again. What a roller coaster fandom here for Brandon. Okay. So he stopped watching because it got too popular got and it wasn't his niche thing. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, so maybe maybe we can end off on um sort of like the subsequent or does it how, how in what format does the Ultimate Fighter still currently exist at the moment? I mean it's pretty much like a carbon copy version that we get every single year with this right. season that I just feel it's like less and less people are attached to it. 
contender series has kind of usurped it as sort of your your scouting tool for for fighters um i mean it's still there like it's all like the tenants of it but it's it's how really important ju- how important is it to the overall mma fandom so low very yeah. very low on the totem pole like i would say like like i don't even know necessarily who the audience is like i don't think it's designed for the person that's following the ufc on a week to week basis. Like it's just not um, something that ever kind of penetrates just the the day-to-day MMA discussion or news cycle. And is it, is it at all effective in in acquiring a new audience into MMA these days? No, no, it's programming. They, they have a platform on like the last season had Conor McGregor and Michael Chandler and they got on ESPN. So it's not insignificant, the platform that they're on, but it was very low viewership by ESPN standards. And I think it's like, if you come out of it, it's, you know, it's an entry point into the UFC, but it's not going to be a star creating vehicle. I would argue too, that it's, it doesn't even serve the function of the coaches necessarily get some big promotional boost. Uh, Like Chandler and Connor are going to draw what Connor and Chandler are going to did the ultimate fighter help. I don't think so. So, I mean, I'm sure there've been plenty of efforts to um, made to try to refresh it over the years. Have any of those clicked uh, and what exactly do you think is missing i would argue that they haven't done a whole lot to refresh it like it's Hmm. still kind of like the same concept the same house they do the coaches challenges they do but it's going to be it's personality driven but i just think you get so much it's just the ufc fan has graduated from this being something necessary to watch on a weekly basis but it's been like that for over a decade at this point it's there and obviously some people are watching it but i think it's more so just it's it's another kind of ancillary promotional package for the ufc that you know hopefully you get some good fighters coming out of it but it's just a giant funnel into a company that now boasts like over 600 fighters under contract and here are a couple more coming out of a season okay so there you have it, everybody. Hopefully this was a uh, an interesting, deep look into the first season of The Ultimate Fighter. Thank you. Thanks again to Jake Alinar for joining us. And we are going to be back on Thursday, December the 28th with our next edition of Rewind Away. And Martin you know Mink. Review. Martin Mink has chosen WWE Backlash from 2007. So at the, at a time when maybe a lot of us were watching the UFC, um, what was WWE doing at the time? Well, this was a month after WrestleMania 23. This takes place from Atlanta. And we've got a main event of John Cena, Shawn Michaels, Edge, and Randy Orton in a fatal four-way for the WWE heavyweight title. The Undertaker against Batista in a last man standing match. Oh, boy. And we've got Bobby Lashley defending the ECW title that he won at December to Dismember, defending it in a three-on-one handicap match against Umaga, Vince, and Shane McMahon. Interesting. All right. Are we that close from uh, December to Dismember for this episode? We're only a few months removed from December to Dismember. Perfect timing. It does tie into our our previous review uh, of that show from December of 2006. So that is uh, the choice of Martin Mink that will be coming up in two weeks' time, the final Rewind Away of 2023. So we look forward to that and you joining us. want to thank all of our Post Wrestling Cafe members, especially those at the espresso level. And, Wade, do you want to start things off with our thank yous? I don't because I don't have – 
Because neither do I. So we are just going to. <laughs> okay, uh, I will start. I changed my mind because I want to thank Jake Allenar for selecting the show. I want to thank the upcoming executive producer, as we mentioned, Martin Mink. Jesse from The Six is coming up after him. So uh, thank you to Jesse as well. And also Robert Holtzamer, Tyler Crane, Ryan Charco, Doug Greenwood, Dom Lamartina, Chris Everett, Alex from Quebec, Mahmoud Elmarty, David Porges, Chad Olson, Jay from OSW, and Bruce Lord. Chris Ely, Brent Nickel, Andrew McDonald, Amar Kashan, Thorsten Bundelmuth, Jason Hagholm, Neil Flanagan, Dom from Naperville, Kishan Amarali, Sean Levine, Cameron Simon, Blake Lavelle, Brandon from New Jersey, Robbie Eleanor, Charlie Bustillo, and Robert Brocky. We thank all of you at the uh, the espresso level. And of course, if you are a espresso or double-double member of the Post Wrestling Cafe. You get uh, multiple audio updates from yours truly uh, throughout the week. So you can always uh, check those out at, at those levels as well. But we thank all of you for your support of Post Wrestling. Next week in the slot, we are going to be doing our final mailbag of the year with Ask Away. So do get your questions in at forum.postwrestling.com in the thread. You can also send uh, voice questions to us at memo.fm slash postwrestling if you want to send in an audio version of your question. We'll answer all of your questions next Thursday here on the cafe. Um, but there you go. That is the ultimate. You're I'm going, going to, to get knocked out. Thank you. Could I have wrapped this, th- this theme way? How, how would that have done? I think you would have done a great job. DJ Jopo in 2005 would have done a great rendition that was my peak period all right that is it for us we hope you enjoyed this review that concludes rewind away number 145